It's Tuesday, March 28th, and you're listening to the Beer Temple Podcast. Remember this is what we wanted. Remember this is what we said. To never be heard a scene from again, 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 again. Remember this is what we wanted. Remember this is what we said. To never be heard a scene from again, 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 again. Welcome to the Beer Temple Podcast. I am once again your co-host, Chris, back. I decided the West Coast wasn't for me, Mm -mm. (laughs) Uh, but I'm still joined by uh, my other co-host, Mike Shalau. What's up, dude? Nothing, man. How you been? uh, Stressed, man. Two solo shows. With you not being here, I I was completely lost. I can only imagine. I I wasn't sleeping. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm glad you're back. How the uh, I, I listened to the first show. I haven't heard the second one yet. Everything cool with that one? Uh, both were train wrecks, as far as I oh, remember. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you know, par for the course. All right. Got it. So, so don't expect anything odd with the second one. Just a <laughs> no, normal show. Normal right? show. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Show you that these people have already heard at this point if they're listening to this one. Yes. yes. Normal show. Yeah. Um. Well, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah. You look good. You look tan. Thanks. Yeah, it was rainy uh, almost the entire time. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah, some nice California rain. Uh, my, I have family in San Diego, um, three cousins and a uh, bunch of little nieces and nephews and stuff like that, and um, none of them own a umbrella. Don't own them. Well, doesn't, I, doesn't rain. I don't own an umbrella either, but that's because I hate umbrellas. Yeah. Uh, you don't own an umbrella? Mm-hmm. Really? No. Oh, well, maybe it's not as weird as that. I, I thought it was very odd that it was raining and they just didn't really know what to do. Let's <laughs> go hoods. Okay. Yeah. Um, they had a rain, one of them had a rain jacket, but it looked like the old seafood shanty guy. It was like, <laughs> it was like a huge rubber hooded. It was more hooded, for, the, for the aesthetic than for like the... Like Paddington uh... Bear or that, you know, whatever. <laughs> sure. That kind of like big old. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Nice. It was kind of funny. It's a good vibe. Yeah. But it's good to be back here at Beer Temple. Got Serge here. A little weird thing going on in the mic, Serge. You hearing that little, it's like a weird little, okay, that's what it is. As you guys all heard Serge say. <laughs> Point to his headphones <laughs> yeah. and say, it's your headphones. Yeah. I have crappy headphones on. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have so many great guests yes. today. Nice segue. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, we got a special show, uh, one we've been... Uh, planning for 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 a bit it's going to be a uh kind of a specialty episode mm-hmm. what are we gonna uh, a specialty of yours too uh not anymore well, <laughs> at one point maybe more so than 99.9 percent of the people <laughs> sure. out there yeah the rest of them are here yeah yeah so what are we, what are we gonna do uh, talk we're about? talking about barrel aging beers uh specifically for this one spirit barrel aged beers yes right sweets and not wild. Not right. wild. Yeah. That might be a different show. Maybe. Yes. Maybe we'll do a we'll different see. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got uh, some heavy hitters in the uh, Chicago uh, barrel aging scene. I would. I mean, some may think it's B-level, 
I think they're A level, personally. Some yeah. may think it's B level. I don't care what those people are saying. I don't care. I disagree with all those people yeah, out there. Me too. I wish they would stop saying that. I do too, but they won't. I'm glad you brought it up. They though. won't stop saying yeah, it. Yeah, they will not stop yeah. saying it. You guys have to prove them wrong with your performance on this podcast, I guess. Yeah, so the pressure's on them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we like to do here, put a lot of pressure on the guests. Yeah, that's what I like to do. Um, I can't see, so let me put on my, my glasses now. Um, and I'll read the outline of, uh, of what you said we're going to be doing. It's going to be a free-flowing conversation. That's <laughs> what you said, Mike. I didn't think you were going to read it word for word. <laughs> no. Well, I asked if you wanted to lead in, and you said I should. So, mm. um, But I think we should probably just kind of get right into it. And um, I'll just say from the get-go how um, awesome it is to have this level of uh, talent here in one room. It's super. I'm, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. And two... Um, no pressure, but I'm going to rely on you to uh, steer this conversation since oh you've actually done this stuff before. All right. Okay. Sure. Fair. Okay. Yeah. But one thing that isn't going to be any different than any other show is we introduce guests by order of seniority. Okay. We didn't That's... do that on the last show I host because I forgot who came oh. with them. <laughs> so oh, I just no. went from left to right. Okay. Well. Well, don't worry. I'm back, <laughs> We're back everyone. Yeah. yeah. It was chaos. Yes. Train wreck, as I said. Yeah, train wreck. So, uh, yeah, or, uh, by seniority, that being how many times you've been on the show, which is the only seniority that I care about. That's right. So, I already already introduced you and myself and Serge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Champions. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, this three people who've been on on the most. Yeah. Edmar um, might still have me, actually. <laughs> yeah. Edmar, maybe I should just mention him. <laughs> um and uh, but after that, it's uh, we have uh, Mr. Mike Siegel of uh, Goose Island. What's up, man? How are you? Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. Good to have you on. I, I brought the gravel. Yeah, I'm you got, like a, a, you got a voice Nick for radio. Going yeah, on here. Nice. exactly. What's up? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What's uh, what's new? Well, um, ready to talk about barrels. Yeah. Uh, you know a thing I, or two about I, I, that. I actually yeah. brought something uh, in this uh, little crawler here. Yeah, uh, one of our not latest, so little crawler. Well, a crawler, uh, a standard size crawler. Uh, probably way too much uh, barrel aged beer, but it's our most recent project. Uh, and hopefully, we will get a chance to talk about that a little later when we're when we're drinking those. Nice. Exciting, sweet. Otherwise, going great. Thanks for having me. Cool. All right. I think uh, we'll have to see what's going to be in that can. Do you have any idea what's going to be when that can open? What's what's going to pour out? Uh, seltzer, you think? It's probably seltzer. I think so too. You never know. Hopefully, <laughs> one can dream. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Mike. It's always awesome having you on. So we did. I can say it now because it, it, we scrapped the project. But we, for about, I don't know, two years, we were working on a barrel aged seltzer, and then we just decided. Uh, it was too good too, to release yeah, to the public. Too, yeah, yeah. We kept it for ourselves. Seltzer yeah. is too so, too hot. Yeah, I know. Hey, hey. That's what I all my all my I do that with all my uh, best thoughts. I keep them to myself, and yeah. only the shitty ones yeah. get put out on the show. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Thanks for for coming on. Now the next two are. Uh, both first timers, mm-hmm. so they're both going to have to introduce themselves because that the is that's tradition. Well, we can't do it at the same time, but so it's not a level of seniority. Yeah, there. but we'll do it by um, alphabetically by last name. How about that? 
All right. So, uh, Sean, why don't you uh, take the mic and let everyone know who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah. Uh, my name is Sean, uh, co-owner and director of brewery operations over at Phase 3 in Lake Zurich. Uh, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really actually honored to, to kind of be on this podcast with uh, two great powerhouse. Uh, I don't want to give it away because he hasn't introduced himself, but two great powerhouse uh, uh breweries with just uh, incredible barrel programs so thank you yeah excited awesome thank you for coming on and uh last but certainly not least what's up marty how are you what up everybody i'm marty scott of revolution brewing uh, i operate uh with honor uh, a barrel program at revolution for jim seaback our brewmaster and with the help of my partner in all things oak victor maravilla nice and then do you just do marty are you just doing because i know sean you do you do everything and we've talked with you extensively mike but do you do any non does everything you touch go into the barrel go into a barrel marty more and more everything that i do has something to do with oak um but i love producing boutique quantity um keg conditioned keller lagers and stuff that's that's what i really like to drink um, I think there's a lot of art that's not being uh, made available widely to the average drinker there. There's there's so much room to play and have fun in traditional methods, and that's really what we love doing. So whether it's a, you know, a non-adjuncted pastry stout or if it's a uh, you know, oak-fermented, French oak-aged, English mild, uh, you know, I'm happy to do any of that kind right. of stuff. Right, an adjuncted pastry what stout. What is a non-adjuncted you, pastry stout? Right? Oh, you'll have to just wait and see. Won't okay. You? All right. Mind blown. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we didn't. He didn't misspeak. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having yeah. me. And just for everyone listening, uh, Marty and Sean have to share a a mic, so there may be a little bit of uh, a delay when when we ask them a question and and they have to swivel the mic around and old it's like old uh studio b days classic we, mm-hmm. we used to call that the doppler effect when i was a sound engineer <laughs> yeah do, 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 do. yeah the right mic around yeah. exactly yeah, as it gets closer they start talking a little bit Leslie early speaker yeah um so basically the idea behind this show mike uh mike i almost said mike s but mike show <laughs> yeah um was you know we've done some kind of uh style specific shows in mm-hmm. the past and we were thinking of like what other ones can can we do and kind of the one that was staring us in the face was uh barrel aged beer um because um as people in chicago probably are tired of hearing but um well the beer geeks uh here but you know we they <laughs> Chicago people <laughs> slipped up. Yeah. Um, well, it's like you know when you're a fanboy and you say we won. I yeah. hope we, you know, uh, it's it's one of those things. Um, sure. But Chicago is the home of uh, barrel aged stout, right? Bourbon barrel aged stout yeah. specifically, right? Unless you believe that lying bastard Larry Bell. Oh but yeah. <laughs> everyone claims they invented it, but yes, it, it arguably is, was invented in Chicago. Well, I mean, what are the? Do you guys have like official archives at Goose Island? I mean, do you have a, a an historian? What 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 do you guys say, Mike? I think I think the official line is we created the Greg Hall created the first bourbon barrel aged imperial stout. He gives right. credit to Sam Adams for 
the first barrel aged beer for Triple Bock. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, a beer that I've, I've never had. And, oh, really? Uh, in, yeah, I don't even know when they. I assume they don't make it anymore. They Is that don't. the one like the little blue bottles? Yeah, what? I may have one. Yeah, I've never I'll had. I'll see if I can find it but, later. Besides being a Bach, I, I don't actually know the specific barrels used or whatnot. I, I know very little about it. But Greg always gives Sam Adams credit for the first barrel aged beer. So Goose Island takes credit for the first bourbon barrel aged imperial stout. Right, and just off the top, we're gonna, if we say bur- like barrel aged, it means like intended to be flavored by the the barrel and the oak, not like just fermented in in barrels because barrels have been used to ferment things for a long time. Sure, but the intention wasn't to add the character of a spirit to it so just from now on out every time we say that don't write us a letter being like well actually and then push your glasses up like i do all the time <laughs> well is that a good place to start i mean should we talk about like why why stouts and barrels is that a little too beer 101 i mean i sure. think we should yeah. get into it yeah i mean uh, for all you uh, guys what are you guys hoping to impart on a beer by putting it on oak uh is there anything that you're trying to i mean yeah why why put it in a barrel what's what's the whole point of doing that just so it gets like more untapped bottle caps or that's the correlation i've noticed usually yeah Yeah. i'll start i guess because i got a microphone in front yeah because you swung the microphone i did talk (laughs) i did that (laughs) i was waiting for you you looked like you had something to say um Revolution is the only brewery that I've ever worked for. So I speak uh, to my own experience, which I have to admit is limited in, in scope uh, just, just by that. For me and for our program, the Deepwood series, we are looking now, uh, never mind you know, 10, 12 years ago when we first started sinking beer into whiskey barrels, um, we're looking to maximize flavor intensities. There are ways to balance them and we are learning ever more about ways to balance them to make them more approachable, uh, to simultaneously celebrate traditional methods and make them more commercially uh, viable in an ever increasing and uh, changing, modernizing market. Um, we want to bring the most flavor and aroma intensity that we possibly can, but still make an intriguing and drinkable, enjoyable beer that you don't necessarily have to share with four different friends. Uh, You don't have to wait for that perfect moment to open up a can or bottle. Uh, We want you to be able to enjoy these beers because it's Tuesday and you're tired or it's Wednesday and you're celebrating something Uh, or just because you don't have anything else cold in the fridge at the time. Uh, We want to make... accessible, flavorful, intense, balanced, enjoyable beers for every budget and every situation. So a a special beer, but not too special. Well, we make too special as well. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. But that isn't the primary goal. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really about balance and accessibility and uh, pulling away all the, the, the smoke and mirrors and just the just the hype about stuff. You can't really taste hype. We want to make sure that the, uh, the liquid drives the reputation more so than anything else. Cool. Marty, I've got a question because I'd actually don't know. Were you, or were you at Rev when these recipes were originated or did you inherit 
them? Uh, a little bit of both. I started as a volunteer about two months after the brew pub opened. Uh, they opened uh, in early February 2010. I finished the Siebel Concise course in April of 2010. And Michelle Foyk, who lied to everybody and told me to lie to everybody, saying I was her cousin, allowed me <laughs> in uh, and told Jim Seabacker, brewmaster, I was her cousin. I just finished Siebel. Can he come see a brew? Um, and uh, everything grew from there. Um, long story short these recipes are still primarily jim seabacks our brewmasters what i've done is i've played with our process uh, in the early days it was good beer in good beer out so we put the best beer possible into barrels we waited as long uh, as we possibly could uh, which oftentimes was not that long and then we released a beer and many times it was it was very good um, probably far less perfect than what we're working towards now. And uh, speaking to what we're doing now is uh, we don't make, uh, D-Star is not one recipe. It could start anywhere from 36 Play-Doh or 30, 36% sugar uh, as a wort stream, and it could finish anywhere, uh, or it could, like 36 Play-Doh is like a sweet component. Uh, 20 to 24 Play-Doh would be a drier component. And then uh, based on those starting points, we have different finishing targets. Um, so we're intentionally making way too sweet for our taste and way too dry for our taste in almost every beer that we produce that's destined to barrels um, because they're very difficult to control. They start in a state of sugar toxicity and finish in a state of alcohol toxicity. And the yeast is usually showing double middle fingers to the brewer who is telling the yeast what to do when you're dealing with these extremes. So rather than aiming for a single recipe and a single outcome, uh, we spread them out and we aim for a really big target on one side and a really big target on the far extreme. We age them, we see where they wind up, and then we bring them back together uh, just using basic algebra. And then we're able to hit a very specific tiny bullseye pretty much every time. Um, and we take this yeast fermentation variability out of the equation uh, to where we can make a beer uh, that, as we say, as the brewer intended, which for my money, is the sexiest expression in all of brewing. What else is... All right, so Marty just well, said podcast everything. podcast's over, I, mean, just, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the entire Great. outline. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Marty. Appreciate that. No. <clears throat> uh, I have a, a question. Um, so I think that... does Do all three of you create a, a beer specifically made to go into barrels? Um, or is it... Uh, a beer that can otherwise kind of stand on its own or, or, or the beers that you're putting into um, these spirit barrels specifically, do they need to have that barrel as a component to make them a complete beer? Well, I'll, I'll get on that. And you were actually, we tasted through some, um, what was it? Two week old Bourbon County stout in the barrel, maybe even one week old, four month old and eight month old. Well, Old yeah. samples for the Beard Temple folks when they came through a couple months ago. and So you can actually speak to that because you tasted it. But um, for myself, at least with Bourbon County Stout, we're talking about a beer when I started at, at Goose Island in 2011 was well you know, underway. It was 20 years or so underway at that point. So at that point, it was just like go, I started as a brewer, then worked in the cellar, then started working with barrels, and then I inherited the barrel program. But this, this was already a juggernaut. You know, so it was really more 
just don't fuck it up type of thing and not uh, <laughs> not really go too rogue. Like bring your ideas that make the quality better of this beer. Um, so I find that you know Marty's philosophy or Rev's philosophy on that is is really intriguing to me because uh, for us it's it is a blending process, but almost every single beer is a single recipe. That again, Bourbon County Stout Fresh is well, it's a thirty Plato beer that ferments to about ten and a half Plato. It's full of esters that isolate. If you remember the isolamyl acetate, it was just a yeah, ton absolutely. of that. Yeah. A lot of like black licorice. Mm-hmm. Um, and a fi- I think a fine beer, but we don't release that beer on its own. Did you yeah. used to release it on its own? Is it like Night Stalker or something like that? Yeah, but that would be... Night Stalker was, was dry hopped. Uh, yeah, was Big John hoppy. was an addition of Cocoa Nibs. So the beer never got released Straight as an up. Imperial Stout. Never, never ever, has, as far no. as you know? Okay. And so uh, if you talk to Greg about this, because, again, it was his beer, was this beer was made to be aged, and not just aged as in oxidation, but aged, of course, in the presence of spirit, uh, in this case, bourbon, and the flavors that come from that. So since then, of course, we've created a lot of our own recipes as a team. We've got a big team, and we've learned a lot, um, anything from how the spirits affect, how the... Uh, Sean, actually, I don't want him to talk here in a second here too, but he dropped a nugget on me a couple of years ago when we were doing a collab about how he feels Munich malt after time, whether through oxidation or just, you know, through the process of aging transforms into this very fruity component. And I, I'd never considered that or thought that before. So that was something that I thought was really intriguing. I don't know if you want to speak more on that, but. Either way, I want to get you in front of the microphone there, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while you're talking about that, just answer. I'd be interested to hear if you also um, have beers that just need to go into the barrel or if you have beers that maybe can do both, stand on their own or, yeah. or go into wood. So uh, at phase three, we have probably eight to ten different stout recipes at this point, uh, ranging from they kind of carry the same base uh, and kind of uh, approach. Um, so gravity is usually staying the same. I'm actually surprised Marty uh, was saying about 36 is where they're at. We were we hung around 36, 37 for, for quite some time. Um, realized the market has shifted. Uh, people are interested in more barrel forward, less pastry. Um, so we're starting to fill stuff a little uh, lower than that. Not too much lower, but uh, sub 35 at least. So we're finishing. Which makes just, Can you talk a little bit about what that means, like yeah. sub 35 and mm-hmm. what literally that means and what effect that has it for yeah. the end? So uh, when we're, when we're uh, talking degrees Play-Doh, it's basically, uh, like Marty pointed out earlier, it's just you're talking about a percent of sugar in that uh, liquid. Uh, so we measure that and... Uh, 37 is ridiculously high. 36 is ridiculously high. I mean, anything over 30 to me is ridiculously high. Um, Meaning a lot A lot of sugar. Of sugar. Uh, sugar, sugar toxicity, as Marty was yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, kind of the standard gravity wort would be something like 11 Play-Doh for like a you know, 5% beer type, okay. type of something. So uh, when we're talking, you know, 35 Play-Doh, let's just use that as reference. Uh you know, it's a lot of stress on the yeast, um, and then it's also results in a higher finishing gravity. Uh, so during during fermentation, the sugars are consumed and turned into, uh, you know, CO2 and alcohol primarily, as well as, uh, like Mike pointed out, esters and flavor compounds and stuff are, are developed during that process. But um, uh, the higher finishing gravity, we get a higher, I'm sorry, the higher uh, starting gravity, we get a higher uh, finishing gravity, which really is just sweetness, uh, sugar in the beer, but 
very much associated to mouthfeel um, is what we've found. Uh, there's other ways of getting mouthfeel, but nothing really can compete, in my opinion, with the, the, the thick with two C's. The That's thick what we're with talking two C's, about. yes. It. Uh, it's definitely sugar-derived. And so how do you go about achieving these higher starting and finishing gravities? Are there specific things you're doing in the brew house, or is it just that the yeast just is tired at the end? Are you mashing really high? Like, what's, uh, the, what no, we, what techniques are you guys using to create the beers that you're... Or yeah. the warts, or then that then becomes the beer that becomes your barrel age. Sure. So, uh, so depending on the recipe, uh, we'll typically basically mass, mass, yeah, maxing out our uh, mash ton, uh, getting all the every amount of grain that we can possibly fit in there. Uh, we definitely lose a lot of efficiency as we do that too. Um, and then usually longer than normal boils for us. Uh, we're usually three to four hours typically. Um, for and then, evaporation and for evaporation, of exactly. Yeah, things. sorry. So yeah, yeah. It's, uh, basically, drive off water uh, to c- concentrate that wort, uh, so the the sugar is higher. And then uh, at phase three, we do use uh, sugar to help uh, get to the level that we need. Uh, so we'll use uh, either DME or um, Brewers Crystals, or, or sometimes not usually in our stout recipes though. But if we need to. Uh, we kind of keep those on hand just in case, but uh, we're trying to get everything from high mash, uh, and, and we actually don't mash very high. We mash low. We want really fermentable, or as fermentable as we can. So uh, our stuff is usually like 148 to 150, which is pretty low oh, wow. for a stout. Um, and uh, yeah, we so we'll, we'll end up with this wort that's 37 Plato. We uh, oxygenate it a little bit more than we we typically would for a standard gravity beer. Um, and then we're normally doing fresh pitches of American ale yeast uh, these days. It started with uh, British yeast. Uh, British yeast uh, tends to have a, a less attenuative properties. It doesn't like to to get the alcohol, you know, up to the 12s. It usually will kind of poop out on us around 11. Uh, so we switched over to, to uh, you know, Chico. Um, and, and we basically always hit about 12%. Sometimes it surprises us. We get up to like 12 and a half, but very consistently we'll hit a ABV target of 12 going into a barrel. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, we'll hit, we'll hit a target of, of 12 ABV, but um, the, the finishing gravity will, will kind of be manipulated. And that's based on the, the original gravity uh, very much so. So we start higher. We're still, we're still going to hit 12% ABV. It's attenuated well um, by, by, you know, in the sense of like right. it is, it Relative is getting speak, to get yeah. to getting eight, the twelve percent, but there might be extra sugar still left because we started higher. Sure. Um, and we we've been playing with that. We've been uh, trying to get a little bit drier stuff to to start balancing out. We're kind of predicting in the future, you know, a year from now or two years from now, what what uh, the market is going to be looking like. What kind of beers we're already kind of liking, and it's a waiting game. It's just kind of that's the process. So. so interesting to hear you say that about. Um how the, the the market and how consumers it's kind of ebbing and flowing with what they're looking for in their imperial stouts because um, I've also noticed that there was a period where they were getting sweeter 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 and now they're starting to come come back um, and uh, it's interesting I mean to be able to like it's not quite a time capsule but we opened a 2010 rare I think I mentioned that to you Mike did did, did I that we opened up a I was here. Oh, that's right. Well, I wasn't here when you opened it, but I popped in and yeah. uh, unconnected to your opening of the bottle, and yeah. uh, you you saved me a pour. Right. And um, yeah, well, obviously I enjoyed it because I forgot until right now that you were there. <laughs> yeah, well, you were, it was after the fact you were at the bar, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it was amazing to taste how relatively thin 
that was compared to some of the big heavy hitters that come out today, you know. Uh, and it wasn't I mean, that long ago. You no, know? I remember when I was at Pipeworks and doing the Barrel Age stuff there, Jones Dog usually was somewhere in 28 to 30, Plato starting and 10 to 12 finishing. And that back then, that was just massive. Right. Like, it was a huge beer. It was like, we're, like is this too sweet? And then, like, within, by the time I left, it, it was already, like a, like, a little thin baby beer compared to what people were making. Hmm. It's which, interesting yeah. how how like there's me, like five six years how of there's trends time, you know seven years of time yeah yeah, yeah. that that's that's really interesting to hear and that you're also kind of like what do you just like well, you said like what you're liking is it just you go out and you're doing like market research or just stuff happens to come and you taste it and you say oh that's that's kind of cool or uh we definitely do market research and you know we're we kind of known for our stouts and stuff so people drop stuff off and uh I think more than that though it's just kind of you know, there's there's been this wave of you know not to de- derail the the barrel age thing, but there's been this wave of like you know lagers and classic uh, you know English style beers and mm-hmm. lower ABV, uh, which is stuff that we've been drinking. So the 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 palate shock, if you will, of going from like a lager and then going drinking like a a big thirty seven Plato OG, you know stout that's been sitting in cast for 20 months or whatever is kind of just like too much. Uh, you know, I want there to obviously there should be a a, a pretty good shock but the shock was almost too much so i think it's more driven by us uh yeah as, as brewers fascinating and in in feedback that we you know we we watch and monitor and stuff so right because even though these like special beers obviously they still sit within your brewery's larger portfolio so they have to make sense contextually in what you're presenting to people outside of your right. program right but it, but it's even interesting if like well i'm i'm personally drinking more of this so what i used to make tastes out of balance mm-hmm. compared to what I used to drink and how it fit into it, um, even within or with a portfolio or not. It's just interesting how over out trends outside of, I think it very much is in, within this conversation, how trends outside of barrel-aged beers will affect still a barrel-aged stout, which yeah, is 100%. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it's inter- it's, that's interesting. Yeah, And, and Sean uh, introduced us to this whole idea. Of course, we had been making a 30 Plato stout for decades, and Sean, when we did a collab, he, what, what was your quote? Uh, our, we, we want the beer to finish at about 15 Plato. Oh, yeah. Right. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's wild. And we did a, what, 35, 36 Plato beer. Yep. And we at Goose have a mash filter. So one of the things that we challenged ourselves to do was to do it entirely of malt. So we've made a couple of 35 and 36 Plato uh, beers or worts entirely of malt, which I, I really don't, you know, you mentioned what you do with your process. I don't think anybody with uh, a mash ton, lauder ton is going to be able to do that all malt unless it's comp- ridiculously oversized. I could be wrong. Just but- over boiling, uh, which I run into a lot. You know, the people that are boiling overnight and not to throw shade at them. I just, you know, I want to go home and see my family. So boiling uh, overnight, very scary. Very scary. <laughs> and yeah, just, you know, or pay- or paying someone to kind of be there to, to watch a boil is just, you know, you're watching work boil all night. Uh, yeah, I have a family. I have a life outside of brewing and outside of the business. So uh, I wouldn't want to be there. I wouldn't want to have any of my brewers have to stay there. And we found really good results using DME. I am on the page though, that I would love to, to, to be able to get away from that and still get a good yield without evaporating all of it. So, uh, DME for the, the noob here, dried malt extract. Okay. Cause I thought it was also, isn't it diatomaceous earth? earth. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like, I don't think they're thick adding mouth, thick mouth. <laughs> <feel>. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, dried malt extract. Oh. Okay. Exclamation is one word. Okay. Got it. I, yeah, I, so just, I just learned that from Marty. Okay. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> we use it, and you know, I, I'm not ashamed of it at all. Uh, some of my, some of the favorite breweries that I have out there, uh, you know, I know use it and or, or similar products to it, liquid versions mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, it's high quality, and it's a tool like anything else. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But but I am on the on the page of uh, we actually are looking at a mash filter ourselves uh, for for our smaller system. Uh, we're, we're getting quoted out, but, uh, it seems to be the way that some of the, quite a few breweries actually that are getting match filters. I don't know if you guys started that trend in the, the Midwest here or what, but, uh, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're making a decent amount of beer. So, yeah, I, we can talk about that offline. Okay. Uh, there's, we don't need to go into mash filter talk here, yeah. but I think there's a lot of, uh, um, pretty cool. I can say that you, can, round you table, can make, baby, you can recover a lot more work, uh, you know, very expensive work. <clears throat> Uh, with a, with a mash filter, so that hammer mill rocking. Uh, and how, what does bitterness play in these? We've been talking a lot about like super high gravities, but how do you guys approach bitterness in these beers? Is it mostly coming from roasted malts, or are you adding hops? I know that there's a wide range for stouts, right? Like some are basically no IBU, and some are like old school ones, like eighty going into the barrel. So where do you guys fall on like? I'll go real quick, and then I'm going to pass it to, to Marty because I know uh, he wants to get in here too. Uh, but uh, most of our stouts were between 35 and 45 calculated IBUs. Um, and then it's, it's actually cool that you, you mentioned the roast uh, <clears throat> component of it because I think a lot of people uh, kind of forget that, that uh, while it's not isomerized alpha acids, it is a bittering component. Um, and I think a lot of people overlook that when they're building their stout recipes because I've had a lot out there that are you know 80 or 90 IBUs um, and they don't have uh, or they have too much roast or, or not enough or, or whatnot and uh, can really throw off the balance so yeah we're, we're like 35 40 IBUs and then uh, rely a lot on our, our dark malts and use a use a ton of, of darker colored malts so at revolution uh, we're making English styles uh, more so than American styles when we're sinking into bourbon barrels, especially um, you've got, so what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean by yeah, that? So we're, we're looking at uh, malt first and just enough hoppiness to give balance to the beers. So 30 to 40 IBUs usually is, is enough for uh, an English barley wine an English stout. If you're going to call it an American stout, um, uh, Regardless of the hops you're using, typically you're going to be going for American varieties. The hop bitterness is going to be much higher as well. Um, and uh, we really want to focus on the expression of malt uh, as, you know, as it gets to sing in a barrel um, or with oxidation. Uh, that's really what we're trying to do at Revolution. So low bitterness and then you know, we're aging anywhere from our dry components are aging for 8 to 16 months are sweet components, uh, you know, sometimes up to five years. Uh, so the half-life of hot bitterness, um, you know, from what I remember is, you know, what is it, six months or a year or something like that. Every, every interval of, of time um, halves the amount of IBUs that... We the, did some studies, I'm not to interrupt, but we did oh, no, some studies do. on BU, actually for Brewery Yard, if you remember that mm-hmm. beer. Mm-hmm. Um, Love that we beer. tracked, it was 95 BU... And again, not a stout, but it was a barrel-aged beer. It was 95 BU post-fermentation, pre-barrel. And 11 months later, we lost about a third. So we were down in the low 60s. And I had it tracked 
for about the next bottles, that is, once it was packaged for the next probably two to three years. And if memory serves, it, it would tick down about another 5% a year after that. That first year, about a third, a big chunk. And then it just kind of trickled down after that. Uh, again, that was a very different beer, but you know, starting very high, 95 and working yeah. its way down. Um, so and that's really the only time we've done BU, a, a long-term, we actually started it with a wort all the way through to uh, three years later. Um, for us, just to touch on Goose, again, with Bourbon County Stout, a, a recipe that existed before my time, we're hitting, it's funny because the recipe actually says 60. Um, it doesn't end up anywhere near that. We actually can calculate for it, and we end up usually 25 to 32. When it's coming out of the barrels? Uh, or when it? Co- yes, if the finished product. Got yes. It. Cool. So it goes um, in at 60, comes out around. It doesn't actually go in at 60. Um, I, it, I want to say it goes in in the... F- high 40s cool um but it's coming out 25 to 32 typically with some variants cool. yeah so just enough same with marty just enough balancing bitterness because that again it's it's very much about the malt and, and the in the the bitterness is meant to balance out everything and uh a, a, another pertinent thing here is uh we're talking about the bitterness of wort streams versus uh finished beer uh, yeast go into a fermentation they propagate and then iso alpha acids from hops stick to their cell walls and what do yeast do if we do our jobs right as cellar people is they precipitate out and they don't go into a barrel so the yeast is caked in iso alpha acids so they precipitate that bitterness out as they drop into the cones of these uh conical tanks um so or blow off or blow off, yeah. If you've seen big beers, high gravity beers with big blow offs, you're you're losing a lot of ISO through that as well. Yeah, uh, dry hopping would do the same thing, and these are strong uh, hyper alcoholic fermentations. There's a lot of activity. That physical agitation, just like a dry hop, that's a little bit too early, will scrub a lot of uh, bitterness. Uh, Antihero used to be produced with over 100 IBUs in the brew house, and it was as a result of the dry hopping, we got it down to the target of about 65 to 70 IBUs, and that was just the physical agitation, the foaming that's happening. And of course, this is going to be happening in a 30. Uh, Plato starting gravity word stream if we've pitched appropriately. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess so moving from recipe formulation kind of brew house stuff into the vessel you're actually going to end up putting these in, right? Should, should yeah. we move there? Yeah. What do you guys look for when you're sourcing barrels and uh, how do you go about sourcing your barrels? Are there things you look specifically for? Are there things you look to avoid? Um, and, yeah. and not necessarily give away sources or anything like that, but I, if you, I'll start by saying that the first the first thing that I'll advise any brewer to know is when was the barrel dumped. Uh, most of us are buying barrels through brokers. There's lots of brokers out there. We, since we're buying in large volumes, will also buy direct from distilleries in truckloads. Um, either way, you want to know when that barrel's dumped. Um, a barrel for for the purposes of barrel aged beer, spirit barrel aged beer, of course, a barrel is an ingredient. It's you, you, a brewer wants to know uh, everything they can about their hops and their malt. Same with the barrels. Uh, if you don't know when that barrel was dumped, I, do not buy it. In my opinion, uh, tr- you you should be on a first name basis with your broker. You need that is the most important person to you if you're making barrel aged beer. Because Marty's giving the hallelujah sign. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this you need to treat the barrel with respect, and that's there is no COA. You know this, Mike. Mm-hmm. There's no. Uh, 
see a way that you get with your barrel delivery that says like that bung was never opened and we can vouch <laughs> this for this the integrity of we this didn't... barrel and there's there, there's no dump date on it you know nothing so you have to have trust of your broker you i would visit your broker yeah. mostly down in kentucky regularly once a year we go down to kentucky i was just down there we go to kentucky at least once a year to talk with everybody that we buy barrels from and the word that i was starting to hear when we were down there was everybody is extended rinsing their barrels now. Now, that got me really scared. And by that, I mean what they're doing is they're trying to, certain distillers are trying to harvest more distillate from the barrel. We talk about oak and we talk about distillate. Uh, Master uh, Blender, at he actually recently retired at Heaven Hill, Mike Sonny told me when we were down there years ago, two to five gallons of whiskey can reside in the barrel right after it was dumped. You look in and you see maybe just a glisten. There's two, potentially two to five gallons of, of foolproof whiskey in that barrel right. that you want. Of course, it's evaporating quickly. Um, hopefully, most of these places really respect the barrel aftermarket, but the, some of the bigger guys are starting to put water in them, put them in a warehouse, and actually get pull that distillate out of the barrel. And then That's evaporate the water again, or no? They'll Stores take the water the blending, out. It's now you've got cutting. you've got lower proof whiskey that you can use it for cutting uh, downstream products. So it mm. makes sense from a from a dist- if you think about what they're trying to do. Bourbon is so hot right now; it's on fire. They need every drop, so they want to get those two to five gallons out of the wood. But um, I will say I will go on the record that our four primary that we use, which is Buffalo Trace. Heaven Hill, Four Roses, and Wild Turkey do not do that. Um, well, if everyone's doing it and those giant distilleries are not, how can those two things both be true? Well, that's not my quote, everyone okay. is doing it. When oh, we were down okay, there, we okay, talked okay. to a pretty substantial distillery, and in their estimation, everyone was doing it. Which meant that's they, why they I, were doing it. <laughs> so so I, I, I called up or emailed all of our major suppliers direct, not through our broker, and I, I know the dump line managers at all the distilleries, and of course you do. all of them said they'll do what the, what their standard is like a one to two gallon rinse post dump right on the line, bung it up off. That's perfectly fine to me. That's standard. The term rinse in the industry, though, I don't know if you've heard this. You probably have. That r- r- when they say rinse, it's not a one to two gallon rinse. It's a extended aging or extraction under pressure or other methods to get the distillate out. So I would just, again, make sure as a brewer that you know where your barrels are coming from, when they were dumped, and what their dump line practices are. Well, that has twofold implications too, right? One is obviously flavor. If the whiskey's not in there, you're not going to get the flavor of the whiskey, but it could also be microbial. It's microbial. That uh, ethanol is your protection right. until it gets to you. Yeah. Oh, So if you dilute that, then it's not as... Having been through the nightmares <laughs> of a uh, infection... You uh, don't say. That, the most well-documented one in the industry... I can tell you, we uh, we learned a lot through having to basically break it down yeah. and rebuild it. And um, yes, one of those that's one of those things. We were actually reusing barrels for a period of time there. Sure. So we would take Bourbon County Stout out of or, or another and put another beer in. We never do that again. Right. And that's why, like, spirit barrels, it's really tough to kind of reconstitute them because almost all those techniques have water involved in them right like steaming is one thing but like if you're trying to soak them and rehydrate those you're saying if you're trying if you get a barrel that's 
that's so dry that it might be leaking a little bit. We've got, yeah, I mean, steam might be less more. than ideal. And this this is kind of a a different thread of like I I put all barrels and I'm sure these guys do as well into domestic and anything coming up from outside of the U.S. Anything coming outside of the U.S. is just a different set of standards because it takes so long to get here. Sure. And we get American whiskey very quickly and at a very high quality. And, of course, it's only a single use. Tequila, right. rum is where barrels go to die. <laughs> uh, we just got some port barrels and cognac barrels in from, from Europe. Took two and a half months. Luckily, they were in good shape. But two and a half months, we get barrels. These guys, all of us get barrels in next day after they're dumped if we're doing our, our job. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Big difference. Mm-hmm. Sean, Murray, what do you guys look for in sourcing your barrels? Do you just call up your best friend who works at every distillery? And <laughs> exactly. By, you know my first name, the dump line manager? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I call uh, my best friend, uh, Dr. Ben Loskin, uh, uh, formerly of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. He just moved down to Louisville uh, at Midwest Barrel Company. I'll, I'll happily do a plug for them. Uh, Midwest Barrel Company and Dark Matter Coffee are my two most important suppliers. Uh, and the relationship comes first. Uh, that line of communication, that level of trust, their investment in your product uh, is a, an, a massive safety measure. Um, plus, you get an opportunity to learn so much more about what you're buying. Uh, you're all the more educated in how to go about using it and designing your products or altering your existing products to fit around what your trusted suppliers can give you. The relationship is more important than so many other um, superficial uh, kind of uh, messaging board uh, ideas uh, or lessons that the people think they know. Uh, those relationships uh, they will open the road for you going forward and they will give you uh, a realistic idea of how to approach uh, making beer in the future using their ingredients, whether it's a barrel or a coffee bean. Uh, we have great relationships with our hop growers. Heck, we go out and we select hops. We go to the Pacific Northwest and we select hops, don't we? Uh, Ken Grossman certainly spends a lot of time with his hop growers and his uh his brokers and he gets the first cut on everything because he's fucking ken grossman and he deserves it uh, at least with the cascade crop um so just going those relationships um pardon me i'm losing my train of thought here we'll have to edit this out uh uh, but the 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 relationship is is everything uh i'm going down to work cbc with uh midwest barrel company um not with revolution uh just because uh, they wanted me to go down and advise other people uh, other brewers uh what they should be looking for what they shouldn't have to worry about uh we know uh, when they were we know when these barrels were emptied uh, we know what was in them uh, they're guaranteed uh, to not be second use or rinsed uh, in a meaningful way um, if we find an issue with it, we've got that reputation and that relationship to, to rely on. And they say, Oh, well, this isn't what we meant to sell you. We'll take it back. Um, you know, that's pulled my bacon out of the fire a couple of times. Just these relationships, uh, have done so much for revolution specifically to move the ball forward in our own program. Uh, we can buy, you know, wacky barrels from, uh, France, if we want cognac barrels, we've gotten cognac barrels that have gotten us four ABV uh, as a result of aging in them. And then we've gotten cognac barrels that got us one ABV. Um, 
you know, the, the barrels are always going to be changing. These are agricultural products, the same as anything else we're using uh, in many senses. Um, but what we want to know is uh, when these barrels were emptied, were they rinsed and do you stand by it? And a good relationship uh, is the number one thing in my experience that you can do to ensure that you're not going to get a nasty surprise after you've sunk a quarter million dollars worth of beer, uh, into a lot of barrels. And it's kind of going back to what you've said in the past on this show, Mike is, uh, and I think you said it on this show, uh, Mike Siegel is that, uh, it's, it's one of the ingredients. The barrel is one 100%, of the, hundred yeah. percent. And the, um, I mean, of course, our focus is American whiskey, um, most of that bourbon, some of that rye. But you can do some great things um, with, with barrels from around the world. You're just taking, I always tell everybody, set your expectations for a 50% failure rate on the barrels. If we're getting in 20 or 50 tequila barrels or rum barrels or anything outside the country, set your expectations that it might be a high failure rate. So if you're willing to take on that risk... Bourbon, I mean, again, in our experience, and as a brewery that went through some tough times, we take it very seriously. We do, um, of course, microbial checks. Uh, we do sensory checks, everything along the way. Uh, we've got a lot of people that are dedicated to this, of course. We're able to throw um, a lot of great people at the process. Um, and then um, at the end, we also flash pasteurize. So that was a big, a big change after sure. 2015 as well. Sure. But uh, that is not a cure that, you know, you have to be clean upstream. Uh, that's a flash pasteurization is just that last bit of insurance. I, I have a, a, a question. What what makes for a assuming that, that the barrels were all treated well and are, are, have come have been treated the way you want them to, to and came to you the way and in the shape that you want them to? It it does the spirit itself in the barrel. Um, what, like what qualities do you think makes for um, a better end product, if any, or is it just a crapshoot? Like, is it are there certain types of whiskey? Is there certain ages of whiskey that are better? Does does that matter, or does you know benchmark and Pappy Twenty Three? It doesn't matter. You know, they they it, it for the end product. I, I'd like to think it matters, and we've done a lot of different variations on you know honing in on a single type of barrel for releases for that reason um, and I'll leave it up to the beer drinkers to to make the call whether they whether they like it or not but for us it does make a difference and it's an interesting thread to play with um, yeah it's a hard question to ask you guys too because I mean there's always you know there's um, cachet to say that it, it does matter as well I'm not saying that you're not being honest, but I'm saying it is a tough question as well. Yeah, and again, we we we're putting a lot of time and effort into that. So for us, that's something that's meaningful. And we didn't really go into this with that plan. It just kind of arrived at that. Even if going back to 23, 23 year old Pappy for the original rare that you mentioned, that was kind of the, the first really real call out that we ever had for Never what, heard of that beer. what a, what that, a barrel what, whiskey? was. What is that? Um, the cognac. Right? But if we're talking about American whiskey, again, I think uh, age of the barrel does impact. When I started, we were, again, the bourbon industry was in a very different place than it was, than it is now. So all of our barrels 10 years ago were, we had a mandate, eight plus year old barrels. And you could get 
an entire truckload of eight plus year old barrels back then. And then over time, it was like, wait a second, you know, we can't, the, 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 what was happening, happening, and you mentioned, you know, the relationship of, uh, with the broker, our broker at the time was really just funneling barrels to Scotland. So we didn't realize it because we weren't going down there having conversation, but they were, that was majority of their business. They would be breaking those barrels down to put a new stave in if they thought it'd be leaking. They, their whole business was based around scotch. And of course, they've got different needs than we do. They weren't built around what a brewery needs. So we, one of those things we went down there in 2016 after our issues was to say, never crack open a, a barrel of ours again. Literally take it off the truck from the distillery, grade it. We'll take A, B, not C, and then put it on a truck for Goose Island if it, as long as it's graded out. We'll take four-plus-year-old ba- barrels, so that's still our standard right now, is a four, which is the majority of American whiskey out there. But four-plus-year-old barrels are usually getting a range of four to eight. Um, and then, again, our four distilleries that we use um, are the ones that we have talked to the dump line managers we won't just bring in any bourbon barrel, basically. Um, so beyond that, yes, the, the distilleries have different mash bills, and then there's rye whiskey and all that. That all comes into play for sure. Uh, but we and we like to differentiate ourselves by doing all those different things, and maybe we'll crack that thing open and have uh, yeah see what that's all about. But um, yeah, it, it, for me, it's it's you know outside of American whiskey, and again, I'm going to let Sean speak here. That's a whole different can of worms, but. Assuming we're talking mostly about American whiskey, rye, and bourbon, um, yeah, it's um, whatever point I was trying to make. I can't remember. <laughs> I, think I think you made, you made it. it. Okay, nailed it. Uh, and and you, Sean, uh, have you noticed that there's any type of barrel or quality of of barrel, meaning what was in there, how long it was aged, um, that you look for, or do you get a blend, or is there kind of like a, a certain magic barrel that whenever it comes up, you, you try to snatch it, uh, anything like that? Yeah, so I, I think got to kind of zoom out and like look at the, the philosophy of phase three in our barrel program is a little bit different. Obviously, we're smaller. Uh, our releases are, are way smaller. Smaller than Goose? <laughs> a, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> How uh, many dump line managers do you know, as you have on speed dial? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I think that's important. Um, just, just to kind of give uh, perspective of kind of where I'm, how I, how I can answer this. But um, we're we're filling and emptying barrels pretty much all year round. Uh, we're filling only about 20 casks a month, uh, and emptying a little less than that because we're trying to grow the barrel program a little bit. Uh, we're we're we're, I think we're just over 300, which uh, that's 300 cask filled. Yeah, it's a decent size for for a brewery of our of our size, um, but we play around a lot. Uh, we don't have a specific brand that we're always trying to, you know, make sure that we have uh, recreated or, or, or kind of our, have a uh, target, uh, like he mentioned, you know, very small bullseye that they want to shoot for, for Deeth's tar and stuff like that. Uh, we do a beer once a year that's called Minushi. Uh, it's a non-adjuncted barrel aged out. Uh, there have not been any bullseye defined yet. Uh, we don't have that yet. So it's really just going through our, our, our barrel stock uh, seeing what sounds interesting, trying those barrels, looking at the age dates uh, or the age that the the beer has spent in there, um, and we're usually blending anything between uh, no less than twelve months. Uh, we're really trying to get that that minimum up to like uh, fifteen, uh, which we should be there pretty much right now, um, and then all the way up to you know we have stuff that's uh, approaching forty months, um, and we'll use that in small quantities so we get this average. I've said it on other podcasts too, and I usually say it in 
conversation with people is, is like a general rule of thumb for us. We're, we're trying to find a target. If, if, if we had any sort of bullseye, we're trying to find a, our, our target would be uh, one month per degree Plato finishing gravity uh, is kind of a, a standard, if you will, for us. So our blend uh, is usually, you know, a blurred circle around that number, whatever that ends up being. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the approach, but we're, as far as barrel selection, uh, I'd just echo what both of them said. Qu- uh, quality of barrel first and foremost, in my opinion. I'd rather have a fresh, uh, you know, off-name brand, if you will, uh, bourbon barrel than a Pappy Van Winkle barrel that was sitting around in someone's warehouse for, you know, three months. Uh, so, uh, but, but with that said, I, I do think that there's probably some minor differences. I also think that I'd, I'd be lying if I if I gave too much credit to the consumer to recognize some of those differences because it's hard for me sometimes someone who's around that daily to even recognize uh, Heaven Hill to uh, you know even like an Elijah Craig which are the same you know same brand and stuff but uh, I don't notice sometimes a huge difference um, but I do prefer you know Heaven Hill and Buffalo Trace are probably my two favorites to work with uh, I think because they dump on a very consistent basis and we're mm. able to get them fresh so they've they've treated me well. Um, yeah, I don't know if that. That's interesting. Your... I uh, yeah. Say what, I have something that I wanted to talk to you about because when we were doing tastings for the uh, Temple of Death, I wanted to kind of piggyback onto what you were about to say. It seems like. Yeah, uh, I'm sure my uh, marketing and communications departments would be uh, upset if I didn't uh, tell the cool story, bro, uh, bit. Um, so, you know, does the barrel matter? Yeah, uh, Mike and Sean have elucidated plenty of reasons upstream uh, why, they, why, the, why it matters. Just the same as, you know, what you know, do hops matter in an IPA? Well, fuck yeah, they matter. Um, and they're all different, uh, so it's up to us to understand how they're different and then how to apply them best to our vision for our products. Um, Mike touched on the age of the barrel, and that's uh, one of the primary things that I look to uh, after how soon was it emptied and was it not rinsed, uh, then I want to know how old the barrel is. If the barrel is really old, if it's a pappy barrel, uh, the oak is entirely extracted. And the only way to recoup that oak is to recoup the whiskey. So if it's an old and dry barrel, then it's just a cool story. However, if it's a three-year rye or American whiskey barrel or a four-year bourbon barrel or something younger like that, we can pair that with a certain component that we like to age for a long time, and we can get more extraction over a longer period of time. Whereas we might have another component that doesn't require uh, the same age. Uh, so then a old whiskey barrel that's still fairly wet, which we rely on a relationship to find out, um, we can get in and we can recoup the oak that's left there just by recouping the whiskey. If it's a younger barrel, then we can get a lot of the barrel itself the longer we're touching it. So this is all part of dynamic aging. Uh, and I won't go in like too deep into this. Uh, we're going to put all the listeners to sleep. Um, it's our goal. But <laughs> they're, they're used to it. Um, <laughs> Mostly but, a while we'll buy this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if you get an opportunity to, to buy a pappy barrel that was just emptied and not rinsed and it's got two to four gallons of whiskey locked up in the, the staves itself, that you is a fantastic... You should bottle the whiskey and sell it as bootleg pappy. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic barrel, uh, but it's not going to take you very long as uh, to, to store beer in it to get what's good from that barrel the extractive side of the equation happens very quickly when you're just stealing the liquid from a barrel um 
if you want to touch the wood and get the wood, you need a younger barrel if you want to maximize your extractive potential, and that's going to take time. So it's just as a brewer, just like with the alpha acids and beta acids in a hop, you have to know its particular uh, uses in brewing, whether it's best on the hot side, the cold side, or if you can do both. Uh, the same is true as knowing what to do with your malts, how much to use it, and in concert with how much bitterness, how much boiling. Um, the barrel is an ingredient, and with it comes um, a longitudinal um, demand on your understanding of oxidation and evaporative concentration. That's kind of like the holy trinity is extraction, oxidation, and concentrative uh, evaporation. Uh, and you just have to understand the parameters of the ingredients you're using, which barrels are definitely an ingredient. Yeah. I found it very interesting when you uh, took the, the time to, man, pull out, I don't even know how many different barrels and taste us through for the, the single barrel pick that we did last year, Marty. Um, Temple Adith, fucking Temp rock star beer. Yeah, and it's great. Great name and awesome t-shirt, by the way. Great design. You <laughs> yeah. guys nailed it. We're going to be, um, well, Phineas gets the credit for, for the design. Um, the kind of uh, Temple of Doom kind of vibe going on. We're going to be uh, cracking uh, our last or second to last keg of that uh, on our anniversary on, on May 7th. So, yeah, so it'll be, we've been saving it. But um, the, the barrel we picked for that beer, it came down to, to two. I don't know if you, re you remember this. One was a two-year-aged Weller barrel. The other one was like a nine-month-old or so wild turkey barrel. And I remember you saying, like, if you guys don't pick this one, and you're talking about the wild turkey, like, I'm, I'm marking this one down because it was really awesome. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> we had a talk, and we're like, well, all things being equal, which one can you cool story, bro? Like, which one has the cool story, bro? Is it the two-year-age Weller, so or is it the... Oh, and we... And I, I said it. I mean, I said it at the time. I was like, all things being equal, for the very first time we've ever done this, there's a lot of other things you have to take into account, too. Is it like, you don't want it to seem like... Um, it, it's. I mean, to be completely honest, we didn't want it to seem like... Rev wasn't letting us touch other elements of their barrel library, and and we like and like how it's very hard for you to say like we passed up this to give you that, you know. It was just right. an easier story for one that we liked just as much, and but we had that conversation at the time. Um, but that said, we were shocked how much we loved and how unique and expressive some of these. Um, other barrels were, which is why I asked the question to begin with. Because which one did you end up picking? A two-year, it was in barrel for two years. It was a Weller. Sure. So it was a weeded Weller, and it, it was great. It was awesome. I mean, the <laughs> I'm, beer is I'm, good. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm just joking. But the Wild Turkey was really good, too. Yeah. Completely different. Um, so you think if you went in blind, you may have ended up with a different result? I'm not saying, hey, is, is, a, is somebody who works at a brewery where we connect with brands right. regularly, it does, I think I, it resonates. I don't I'm know. I'm just curious what the greater... What I mean, the there were a bunch of other ones things. with, like, name... There were Buffalo Trace barrels. There were a bunch of other ones yeah. that we... I mean, how many barrels did we taste through, Marty? It was, like, a ton. 
It was a couple, two, three, seven, eight, nine, twelve. I don't. I, I think it was like sixteen or so barrels or something. I mean, there was maybe even more, and there were a lot. And those were the two. Um, and we all kind of voted our one, two, and three. And I think uh, when we added up the points, that was the one. But who knows if it was blind? What our that's the same thing Favorite with any, any like it's impossible tasting, to right? know. Right, right. We're human it's beings, impossible to know. You know? Well, Two year yeah. weather has a certain vibe ring to it. Well, and can... and also it has a certain ring when the person who is the end consumer is drinking it too. Right. I mean, they're also that taking that experience, right? It is. Yeah. It is. And and we are taking all that stuff into account. I mean, the beer had to taste amazing. And the consumer is so much more aware of that stuff now than yeah. like 10 years ago. Like right. Back in my day, when I was still at Pipeworks, we got some 35-year-old Heaven Hill barrels. And we were like, should we release these? There were four of them. Should we release these as their own blend? And then we blended it with the 12-year-old barrels we got at the same time. And unanimously, everyone agreed that the blend was better. And so we put out a blend of the 12- and 35-year-old barrels, and that was probably the best-received beer we ever made. But I, I can almost guarantee you we wouldn't have made the same choice now. There'd be there's too much there'd be too much value in saying these are thirty five year old barrels. Uh, maybe right. we made a small blend of it, but we wouldn't have that wouldn't have been the decision of like no, this one tastes better, so it all gets blended together. There's there's so right. many more extenuating factors that people are aware yeah. of and, and people value like back then yeah. like. There also there really isn't any thirty five year old Heaven Hill, so there's in the same brand and recognition, but it's stuff that gets blended into other stuff. But yeah, so to answer the question is yes, we did take that into effect. Do we stand by the end result? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the taste Beer's of the beer is great. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, that that was one of the main reasons I wanted to ask that that question because I was really surprised by that, uh, Marty, and and. I, w- I remember saying it over and over again to everybody sitting at the table is like nobody else gets to realize this. Nobody else gets to experience it. And it was so eye opening to just to be able to realize that. So it was I didn't know if it was a fluke or if that's just like, you know, no. I mean, maybe maybe the rock star that year is going to be the nine month age to heaven hill uh, i'm sorry turkey um, wild turkey barrel um it was pretty cool it was it, it is amazing how these things are all just and and even within the nine you, you probably gave us four i think to heaven uh, a turkey heaven wild tur- heaven turkeys and how many samples they were they were just they were so different uh even within them so, I mean, there's so many variants when you talk about the rev stuff because it was also like some are w- went in at higher gravity, some went in at lower gravity, some of the lower gravities went into this. We had some higher gravity uh, wild turkeys, some lower gravity uh, wild turkeys. We had some age for this long, that long. It was, I mean, there's so many variations. I can't imagine putting a blend together. It, it's, I mean, it must be fun, but it must be daunting. Uh, yeah, that's a, a very astute uh uh, summation there. Uh, it is. It can be daunting, uh, but when when things are going well and mostly to plan, which is usually as, as much as we can hope for, um, it it's a hell of a time. I'm having more fun with this job than I've ever uh, had in uh, twelve or so years of doing this. Um, you know, it's it's 
I, I liken it to being an artist. I'm not an artist. I don't consider myself an artist. Uh, but if you're making an oil painting, uh, if all you ever do is buy uh uh, your primary colors in a black and white and you never blend them. There's only so many uh, things you can paint with it. Uh, but when you're willing to blend and you're willing to, you know, change the hues and uh, make those manipulations and then bring them back together um, in concert once they're aged in their appropriate uh, ratios at whatever volume the, the sales team has asked you to execute, um, now the whole universe is open to you. And when, um, I know, uh, this might be a good segue into another thing we want to talk about and, uh, blending for off flavors and complexity. Um, at best you get to blend for complexity and sometimes it's a very practical thing to, to blend away subtle off flavors and aromas. Um, again, these are, these are challenging beers and, uh, for revolution, we don't like to dump beer. We will, if we absolutely must, but, uh, the system is put in place, um, to allow us to react to changes once the plan changes uh, or something doesn't go according to plan, um, we have to have this uh, flexibility and uh, creating sweet and dry components and then putting them in different age barrels depending on how long we expect to be aging um, gives us the right amount of the right red, the right blue, the right green, the right black, the right white. So it sounds like um, with these having different uh, gravity beers, and, and you've told me that even like as you're drawing um, to make a blend, if you notice that you're doing more of the uh, high gravity, uh, that you almost like put in an, uh, an order, a purchase order into the brewery to say, okay, we need to refill more high gravity. We need this much high gravity, this much low gravity or, or whatever it is that you're always kind of having this balance to work with, which doesn't seem to be, uh, the case with the other two people here. Um, where did that system come from to do it that way? If, if it's not, I assumed it was industry standard uh, until tonight. <laughs> tis not. Yeah, tis not. I, so, would, I would think not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it started with uh, Straight Jacket Batch 1228 in, uh, I want to say, around about 2015. Uh, Straight Jacket back then, and like all of the Deepwood series, was good beer in, good beer out. There was no intentional blending uh, unless... You know, we wanted to release more beer than the brew house could produce, or rather, a, a fermenter could hold. Uh, back in those days, we had uh, you know seven and a half uh, degrees Plato was the target finishing gravity for straight jacket back then. And so dry boy. Uh, yeah, and they're they're still you know seven to like eight Plato is a is a high finishing gravity uh, blended for us for pretty much any of our beers. The only reason we approach or exceed that is if we know we have a ton of oak and a ton of alcohol. If the hydrophobic qualities of the beer uh, are going to outpace the hydrophilic uh, quantity or properties, it's going to be dry and boozy. Um, and the other way, it's going to be sweet and flabby. So we, we aim for a specific relationship between alcohol and oak and sugar. Um, and that might be a, a discussion for another evening. Uh, but the short version is uh, batch 1228 uh, a number of years ago. Um, the mash temperature was missed. The, uh, the mash kettle steam jackets got left on after mashing. And we basically mashed out before we fully converted. Uh, it was a mistake uh, by a, a, 
an old brewer and uh, we had to make a corrective batch uh, so that uh, I don't remember that bad. Maybe it was uh, 1539, I want to say. Um, of course. A, a very, Gotta yes, of course. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we made a corrective batch that over attenuated or basically attenuated so dry that we could blend them 50 50 and have straight jacket. Well, back then we could only sell. 50 oak barrels or so of straight jacket in a year. And now we have two turns uh, worth or two batches worth. So we could only sell 50% of both of those batches in the, in the first year. Um, but once that was blended and corrected, we still had half of both the under attenuated and the quite dry. So the very sweet and the very dry batches uh, aged into a second year. And we thought, well, this is great because straight jacket is already made for next year. You know, that box is checked. Um, what we didn't account for was the extra year of aging before those barrels would see the light of day. And what we noticed was the dry barrels were very much like the dry barrels that we filled. They were pretty stable as a factor of time uh, or over a factor of time. And the sweet component, however, almost looked like a stout. It was super dark. There was this visual cue that with this high sugar liquid um, as a product of time, uh, had changed visibly and it had also changed you know, by flavor and by aromatic. And, and uniformly blended. within the high gravity, it wasn't just one barrel, Correct. all of them. Wow. Correct. Uh, and is they just have oxidative effect. What is it? Oxidative and evaporative concentration. So you have water and alcohol are fucking off out of the barrel through evaporation at about an equal rate, but the sugar doesn't go anywhere. It stays put. You put 53 gallons worth of flavor into a barrel and that 53 gallons of flavor is still there. However, many years later, um, it's the water and the alcohol, the flavor and aroma, non-active components are evaporating. It concentrates everything else. Uh, so we see that time um, exaggerates what you put into the barrel in the first place. Uh, so this was a lesson that was first uh, given to us visually when we saw the colors um, of the same recipe. One started and finished, uh, or that one finished at, a, at one gravity very high and the other very low. And we saw the difference in... Uh, how they aged. Uh, and then when we blended them back together, we saw that straight jacket was in its, it, it, an entirely new thing. It was the same recipe. The thing that we changed was the age. And back then the barrels we were using typically were quite young. So we also got an extra year of extraction from the barrel. Uh, so now you have uh, an exaggeration of extract an exaggeration of oxidation acting on the sweet component uh, within the barrel. And then you have an exaggeration of the evaporative concentration. So everything that you've already extracted and oxidized is now concentrated through an, mm. an additional year of evaporation. Uh, and that holy or unholy trinity is the basis to our approach. And those are the primary manipulations that mm. we're making now uh, to make regular old straight jacket versus VSO or any of the right. other I was going to say, is that beer that you were talking about, did that become VSOJ? That became the first batch of VSOJ. And we used, instead of a 50-50 blend, we'd use three sweet barrels to one dry. Oh, uh, cool. And very so that's what a very special old jacket uh, or sweet. Uh, <laughs> So what we realized was that uh, the sugar concentration as a factor of time kind of set the ceiling for oxidative uh, development. So the deepening and changing of flavors, uh, you pair that with a young barrel, then you exaggerate the extractive flavors as well. Um, and then the longer you age it, 
all that extra extraction, all that extra oxidation and its impact on a sweet barrel, uh, you evaporate more. So you concentrate more. So now you can achieve four times the amount of flavor and color, uh, in the same footprint, only doubling its age. And this gets us into the economization or the weaponization of dynamic <laughs> aging, uh, what we refer to as uh, barrel stack optimization at revolution. <laughs> nice barrel stock stack optimization. I love it. Uh, from there, I think maybe I'm ready for a, a short break. And then when we come back, I want to see, I want to, Pop uh, this uh, crowler of a Celci. Talk about BSL. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. So we'll be back shortly, and then we'll continue talking about barrel-aged stouts. See ya. Welcome back to the Beer Temple Podcast. We're having a little uh, spirit barrel-aged beer roundtable with Mike Siegel from Goose Island, Marty Scott from Revolution, and Sean Burns from Phase Three. Some some heavy hitters. We've got a we've got a uh, a heavy hitter in the peanut gallery now too. We've got Garrison from uh, Russian River. Sorry, I don't, don't want to blow up your spot, but anyway, um, jump on Mike. Tell us yeah. everything we're wrong about. Yeah, right. So they don't have a, a spirit. But that's one of the things I noticed when I was out in California is the spirit spirit barrel programs do not seem to play the same role that they do here in Chicago. Obviously, well, Firestone Walker had one. That's but, a Chicago-inspired thing, probably. Yeah, I, I do think maybe it, it doesn't maybe. necessarily radiate <laughs> from here, but it was something that was definitely noticed. I think when winter isn't nine months long, aging things in spirit barrels doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were, I was out at Sierra Nevada and Chico years ago. You, I'm sure you've been there many times. Their whole barrel warehouse was temperature controlled to about yeah. 50 degrees. Yeah, yeah, I remember think, that. Which is different than a lot of barrel programs, um, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're about to talk about, I, I think, blending yeah. is what we agreed. But before we get there, I wanted to talk about some of the beers that are opened. Uh, you brought a... Uh, a crower mic uh, because that's the new format that Goose is moving toward. Is that why? <laughs> or the ran out of yeah. bottles. This so was... Bourbon County is all going to be in crowers now. No, because I love oh. you. I love you guys. Move. Only yeah. a few people uh, have tasted this um, before. Right now, this is not finished beer. This is extracted from the barrels yesterday, so still in the tank. The tank's probably still crashing. Uh, so it's not been centrifuged, pasteurized, carbonated, but these Zwickle. are we're all pros here. Um, Uncarbonated, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a, it's it's like from the barrel, basically. You might even get right. some barrel char between your teeth. Um, but what this is, so I mentioned, you know, of course, we inherited Bourbon County Stout, and it's I call it carrying the torch, uh, a very important torch, and that's just making the best version of that beer every single year. We get to make our mark. For me personally and the, and the brewing team on the future by doing these barrel variants or doing adjunct variants and kind of taking this base beer, um, with a very few exceptions, we, we create new recipes, uh, a barley wine, a wheat wine. Well, in this case, what this beer is, is a blend of 18 to 36-month-old beers, uh, barley, um, English barley wine, oatmeal stout, rye stout, uh, quadruple. Um, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's see if I can remember you this all. It's at least four different recipes and uh, finished in rum, bourbon, cognac. Um, and the barrels range from, I think, 
probably six years to 17 years in age. So kind of stretching out both with malts, with, with uh, uh, barrels, with aging time. Like I mentioned, 18 to 36 months in the barrel. Uh, we don't get to do this that often. Um, and it's our 35th anniversary in May, just like it's your anniversary in May. Yeah. So we, we, this has been in the works for quite a while. This is a 35-barrel uh, cuvee. Wow. That we're going to release in four packs. Not to, that I don't want to turn this into a you know sales pitch. It, that's just what it is. It's going to be on sale in, in May. Nice. But we want to do something different with our barrel releases. It's it's smaller scale. It's it's you know not this big big release like we put so much focus towards, but something that's we tasted. We've got all these different barrels that we wanted to go through, and we got to pick and actually blend to a profile. And there's a lot of things we could have included that we didn't, that we just didn't feel were right. But it was really fun for us to work on this, for us, smaller scale and be very deliberate with the end result. It's interesting. I mean, you, yeah, t- talking about blind tasting, you should have almost asked me some questions before you said what it was. What I would have guessed was that it was old. I mean, <laughs> it, it, tastes, it tastes like Aged. it has age to it. Yeah, it, it, not in a bad way at all. Um, but other than that, I w- had really no clue what was what was going on here, and I guess for for good reason. But I I love uh, the aged character to it, and I don't know. I'm a sucker for like big stouts that are actually boozy, so I yeah. I really appreciate some that of this is too. double barreled, in yeah, seventeen year old barrels. So nice. Um, Again, we try to pull all, at least for us, the, the many different levers that um, we had. A lot of these beers went into the barrel without much of a plan, so we had this stock to work with, and um, just fun, fun project to, to actually cool. see into the tank now, yesterday, and uh, off to the packaging team. Did you do that Next. because you knew you were coming on this podcast and you had is, to like show Is that why off? you made this like That's way back in the day? Is that how you did your production <laughs> schedule? <laughs> exactly. Mike, do you know, uh, or what's like the primary uh, beer base in here? Or is it pretty equal? Or it's about forty-eight percent barley wine, okay. and then uh, the, the quadruple is pretty small. I'd say it's like maybe five percent quadruple. Can we say four percent? And so forty-five uh, percent stout. But again, the stout is split between oatmeal, rye. The rye we do is malted rye, chocolate rye, caramel rye. Um, Trying to think again, should have been better prepared, but I think it's just the four recipes. And then one's a cognac finished, one a lot of rum finished, a lot of bourbon finished. Um, again, having some fun. Yeah, you guys usually use sorry, I'm, I'm it's interesting because uh, we only usually hear about like bourbon county stout, right? So I think it's kind of interesting. Do you use uh, a lot of different recipes for bourbon county stout, or is that just was that more one off stuff that you're doing, like the oatmeal stuff that you're talking about? And stuff yeah, like that? we did an we did a, a beer in the bourbon county family called Special Number Four a few years ago, which was an oatmeal stout base. It used that Simpsons uh, uh, that caramelized oat. That's fantastic. If you've ever yeah, the golden naked oats, the king of oats, it's like a caramelized oat. Essentially, I'm sure you've used it. Um, that's that's a big driver there. Uh, and then the rye one we, was the base for the beer we did a couple years ago. Fourteen uh, was the rye base for that. So we've incorporated them, but we've, for whatever reason, they got adjuncts. You know those those recipes we, as brewers, we wanted to showcase. We we feel like an oatmeal stout in barrel on its own could be 
great, but there's some some internal dialogues about uh, you know what the consumer is interested in. So here again, no adjuncts. We want to just present malt and barrel and time as we saw fit. Does it have a name? Uh, it'll be, be 35th anniversary cuvee. Got it. Yeah, I like it. So, and I think we've talked about format. Obviously, Bourbon County is a 500 milliliter bottle, which uh, again, it is what it is. But uh, we're going to release this in a four pack, 12 ounce, which. For me personally, twelve ounces is a great serving size for barrel aged beer. Good, good. So, glad to hear it. Yeah, that was me clapping, by the way, in case anybody <laughs> didn't know. Don't look at my uh, the seven fifty <laughs> I brought on the table. I'm sorry. Shame. There's all different ways of doing it. It's just is somebody who you know we produce five hundred mil almost exclusively. It's nice to see the twelve ounce. You also didn't used to do twelve ounce and then go away from it. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've been all over. So Chris isn't mad at you. I think you've been very successful in what you've done. I, I love shots. everyone. <laughs> I'm a lover, not a fighter. You know that about I do. me, Mike. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what's the? Uh, you, you also have a, a a beer that you've opened up. Uh, yeah, Sean. We well, figured if we were opening up some big stuff, I'd crack a bottle. Uh, so I brought a blend 2022. Uh, Kind of has a funny story, uh, but I'll tell you what it is first. So it's a, a barrel aged imperial uh, porter. I'm sorry, it's 75% barrel-aged uh, uh, dark English barley wine, uh, which made up our, our uh, makes up our arabesque base. And then uh, the other portion, the 25%, is uh, what makes up our pressed base, which is uh, imperial porter. Um, that starts a little lower than like our, our stout, um, so it has a little bit drier uh, kind of finish to it. Um, and we don't use any roasted barley or, or black malt in that, uh, or darker, as much dark grains in it. Um, yeah, the, the story kind of, we were filling, filling some casks and we got to uh, the last cask and we ran out of uh, the arabesque base to uh, put in the cask. So, you know, it was only about half filled and we were like, man, what do we do now? Uh, so we looked in the cellar and we're kind of like, well, we got this press base that we, we brewed last week. It'll be ready next week. Or we, we brewed it two weeks ago. It'll be ready next week. Uh, we decided, well, we'll just top off that barrel next week when it's, when that one's ready, we'll send it through the fuge and uh, top her off and see what happens and uh over time we started tasting and we're like this is actually tasting pretty good like this is very interesting and uh we decided to uh double barrel it we took it out of the out of those casks uh buffalo trace cask and we ended up putting it in a, a vso cask cognac cask um let it age for an additional i think 14 months uh, if i'm not mistaken wow. so uh total time was you know 20 i forget 26 months maybe uh on wood uh, split between two different casts, but it, it turned out really nice. We liked it a lot. We we released it for our uh, our uh, three year anniversary, um, and it kind of inspired us. We'll kind of continue to maybe not have a more intentional effort to it, but have the same thought process of blending some of our high gravity stuff together. So it's it's actually funny that you know Mike yeah. opened up a. We didn't plan that. You know, he right. I didn't no, even know it was in the crawler until until just now. So cool that we we both brought something that has like a unique blend that. Uh, I yeah. think works worked out really well. Very interesting flavors. A lot of, and I I'm not the one who like starts pulling out the the tasting notes and stuff like that. But um, I, I got like um, a lot of uh, like unsmoked cigar tobacco smell, which I think is very pleasant smell. Once you light up the cigar, I'm not as big a fan, but uns unlit cigars are are very tobacco. pleasant to me. Yeah, tobacco yeah. that comes up. Yeah. We see that quite a bit. I think yeah. you're, you're spot on. I'm with you. I'm more of the, 
I'd rather smell the cigar. Yeah, unlit. The cigar. right, right. Uh, so, and then uh, some really nice kind of like chocolate orange, candied orange kind of thing too. So, thanks for bringing it. Uh, and uh, it's interesting. It's it's very thick with two C's, and you realize tasting Mike Mike Siegel's uncarbonated version versus uh, Sean's carbonated version, how the carbonation on these sweeter beers is critical. I mean, it really helps rinse rinse it off your palate. Um, without the carbonation, uh, it wouldn't work. I mean, and, yeah. and it's not like highly, it's not like bubbly. I mean, it looks still in the glass, but you taste it, and I mean, it's, it's certainly well, you, carbonated. You slow it poured it, got the meringue on top. It was yeah. Nice. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's got that dollop going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we uh JK. For for a long time at phase three and JK. and and everything, the any any of the sellermen and packaging guys would kind of be like, or right, what are we, you know, carbonating it to? And it was always kind of this like, well, we don't carb to spec, we carb to taste. And, you know, it was very much that was always my still is my philosophy. But now we take notes at least, so uh, <laughs> we we at least like all right. Well, what was it? Just so we know. Uh, so we we do Zomit. Uh, we have a we have a C box, but uh, C box doesn't like uh, this thicker stuff in there. So we we Zomit, and uh, we're usually you know in the the low twos. I don't know what either of those things. Like mean. Sorry, yeah. Uh, What's Zomit and C box uh, mean? Yeah, so uh, don't just worry about ways it. of measuring gas. Uh, our okay. C box is a very precise tool uh, that we can measure parts per billion of oxygen as well as co2 volume uh, uh, co2 so uh, the volume of co2 uh, typically ranges on like the low end for most beer styles would be like one eight for like a classic english you know yeah. style beer all the way up to like you know three for like something super Belgium. bubbly like, like a two five beer. is, is pretty two five standard, would be a normal right? yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah give or take you know point two that off of yeah, i know that at least mike um, mike siegel it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stop throwing him shade, Mike Siegel. <laughs> We're normally very low, though. Uh, so we we did measure it, but yeah, that was always my philosophy on on anything strong. It was like I don't want I don't want anyone to have a number in their head that we have to reach. It was based on flavor. So let's carb it to where we think it tastes balanced and incorporated and you know well. Um, but they started measuring it. I think actually they didn't even tell me. They were just kind of like one day they were like, oh yeah, well the last one was this, and I'm like, I'm like, well don't. Make sure we're not like not all the ones going forward are the same. We're, we'll we'll do it to taste. So uh, awesome. But have, we we do one we do one beer that's still. Uh, and that's a, uh, we do Lambic? No. Uh, oh. <laughs> we do we do one one uh, barrel aged stout when we do uh, single barrel like selects with uh, you know some of our retail partners. Uh, you know it's a very small quantity. You're talking 180 bottles or something, and we tend to not uh, carbonate it at all. We we uh, actually don't even f- centrifuge it. It's the only beer, that, uh, stout, stouter barrel aged beer now that we don't centrifuge. Just give it some time cold, um, but gives the best representation of kind of having that crowd of people there to taste the whiskey, uh, as as well as mm. the the stout. And we kind of keep it still, so it's almost like they're pulling a nail or right, grabbing right. a sample out of the cask. So what's the cool? What's the yeah. highest you've carbonated barrel aged beer? And I don't know. What do you What do you find when you think there's too much? He doesn't have notes. <laughs> no, I don't. Like, I don't know. With the mouth, <laughs> probably two four or so, two five maybe. Oh, that's pretty high. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we've gotten some that are up there. Uh, depends if it's adjuncted with the how thick the the, the mouthfeel already Jesus. is and what we need to balance and stuff. So yeah. Um. Well, we've should we talk about blending, Mike? Yeah, Mike Shalau. So you guys have hundreds of barrels in stock. When you go about t- 
to make a beer to put into a bottle or a keg to sell to people, how does your blending process start? How does it work? Are there goals when you go in there? Are you just looking hunting for the best barrels to put together? Does it vary? How the hell do you guys do it? I have no idea. <laughs> I just repeated what he said, but just more idiotically. I'm going to go first because I think I'm very simple and I know that they, they have a more uh, probably intricate way of, of doing their blending. So I'll get my uh, quick, simple way out of it. Uh, so we, I basically use a spreadsheet and I monitor all of our uh, through, through a spreadsheet. Uh, I, I kind of airmark things that, you know, just based on experience, what I'm looking for. Again, I kind of point to that blurred bullseye that I talked about earlier where, you know, we have a specific uh, blend uh, goal uh, as far as age goes. But not necessarily. But we're layering, you know, older casts with younger casts to to reach that goal. It's not just pulling all the casts that are there. So, I usually am kind of going through, flipping through, you know, the spreadsheet, looking at what casts would fit the bill. And then uh, Kyle, uh, our production manager, and I usually sit down, and then we'll taste through it, and we'll get some other feedback from some other people, and uh, kind of take it from there. So it's it's nothing crazy. Uh, we're kind of just making sure sensory that it that it fits the bill, what we're looking for. If it doesn't, which it's happened a couple times. Then we, we kind of get go back to the drawing board and like look and see if we got anything else that we think might. So that's as as crazy as we get with our our plenty. Well, when do you start tasting stuff? Like how long uh, after it's in the barrel do you start? So even early on, when we didn't have a ton of casts and we weren't filling as many uh, and we weren't so busy, uh, it was trying to taste casts at three months, and that was purely for sensory, just to see did this. Did we make a clean beer and put it in cask, or is it starting to spoil? Is there any off flavors? Uh, we had limited space, at, especially back then, so it was like if it starts tasting bad, get it out of there, and we'll just focus on getting some new stuff. Um, lately, though, uh, it's usually not until probably after a year, and kind of as we're getting closer, within a couple months of kind of you know thinking of 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 pulling those casks, and we'll kind of do a, again a sensory, see where it's aging. Um, we've only had one cask, two casks that we've done that. Uh, we decided not to pull um, because they, they weren't where we wanted them. And uh, they actually ended up being really good casts. Some of the casts that are older is like 40 months right now. And uh, they turned better. And I know that's part on the outline that I saw was kind of if we, if we do that. And that's the only time that we've done it. And we haven't even actually finished that project yet. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how we do, do things over at Phase 3. I guess it uh, looks, looks like we're going in uh, ascending order of volume. Uh, it's a revolution You're in the just middle vibes, here. right? You're just like, this, yeah, this most barrel looks cool. You nailed it. I'm yeah. done. I yield my time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we produce... Fuck that barrel. <laughs> <laughs> so at Rev, uh, we turn every uh, kind of batch or grouping of barrels into lots. Um, so it's across batches and then we subdivide across variety of barrels filled. So it could be a batch of barley wine that's, you know, 40 oak barrels filled, or it could be 150 oak barrels filled from that same batch, that same fermenter across that batch. We could fill one to eight different varieties of spirit barrels. So we'll break, uh, across batches and across, uh, barrel variety. We'll turn them all into lots. Uh, and, uh, between four to seven months, I'd say roughly, uh, after the barrels have been filled, we can expect the ABVs to be more or less stable, uh, as a result of, you know, extracting whatever booze, uh, has been sequestered in the, in the oak for us. 
and we'll run it through the alkalizer uh, in the lab. Uh, it tells us the sugar concentration as well as the ABV. Um, and just like, you know, it's much easier to, to drink a, a pint of Jack Daniels if you make whiskey sours uh, than if you just sip it out of the bottle. Um, you know, it's all about the balance. What's, what's balancing the alcohol? It's the hydrophobia versus the, the hydrophilic components. So it's sugar versus alcohol. We call that balance value. Um, so we establish a target balance value for every single barrel-aged beer. You know, we tasted back a, a couple years ago, the brewers got together and we tasted uh, every beer for two vintages, and we tasted Distar side by side. When from, you say every beer for two vintages, what do you what do you mean? I'm by sorry, that? Uh, every beer within the Deepwood series that we packaged. Um, so all uh, two years worth of Distar, two years worth of Straight Jacket, two years worth of Ryeway to Heaven, um, all the the main base uh, beers, uh, and we established this relationship between uh, sugar and alcohol. Uh, which again, we call balance value. Um, and we said, okay, it's this ABV and this, uh, you know, degrees Plato finishing gravity post barrel. Uh, and we said, do we like this to be a little bit boozier or do we want this to be a little bit sweeter? We kind of loosely defined, um, the perfect expression of that beer. Uh, as a matter of balance and how easy it is to drink. Um, you know, barrels are going to come to us in different uh, wetnesses. Sometimes we get, again, one ABV from barrel aging, and sometimes we can flirt with four. Um, and if you put the same beer into varying barrels, you're going to have very different outcomes uh, on the back end. So knowing this, we intentionally differentiate or diversify uh, the barrels that we're filling uh, per batch. Uh, not only to spread the risk, um, but just kind of spread our wings. Um, and we said, okay, is the perfect expression of D-Star a little bit sweeter than this, or is it a little bit boozier and oakier than this? Um, and we established a target balance value. So now we produce very sweet, very dry, and we blend them back to the uh, uh, what we think is the appropriate relationship between sugar and alcohol. Um, so that if D star or straight jacket is 13 ABV one year and 16% the next year, it's still, uh, you can still identify it as that beer. It's got, uh, the right amount of sugar to balance, uh, that amount of alcohol. Of course, there's Oak, which is very, an Oak tannin, um, which plays on the same team as alcohol, which is very difficult and expensive to quantify, um, so, you know, that, that's still, you know, uh, something we can't control other than like by picking very old or very young barrels, but it gets us in the ballpark. So after a couple of months of aging, the ABV, um, and sugar is more or less stabilized in barrels. We'll sample a representative number of each lot. So maybe it's four to 10 barrels within each lot. Uh, and then we have a sugar and alcohol um, value for both of those. Uh, and then we say, okay, we need to release 112 barrels of barley wine. We have 18 lots uh, of barley wine uh, to make this 112 or whatever I said barrels um, to sell. And now we want to make sure that uh, we have the correct 
uh, ratio of sugar and alcohol as a balancing factor. Uh, and then we get into the age of the sugars in which we call the MCVM or malt complexity value expressed in months, uh, which is the average age of the sugars therein in the blend and higher numbers are more raisiny and date and, and that kind of stuff, uh, especially in the paler beers. Um, it's very complicated to say in a podcast, uh, but uh, we have spreadsheets and uh, we're, we're planning for this uh, when we order barrels and when I order sugar concentrations from the brew house. Well, I thought it was going to be a complex system, but I guess not. Just vibes, like I said. Right, you were right. <laughs> yeah. You were going to say something, Mike? Uh, so your entire blending process seems analytical and data-driven. There's no like organoleptic... Oh, no. Uh, that gets us to the ballpark. Now we're just in the neighborhood we want to be in with no surprises. Uh, <laughs> the days leading up to the actual blending when we're pushing the barrels together into a single tank, um, Victor, uh, uh, my partner in all things barrel seller person and, um, and barrel specialist, uh, and Jim Seaback, our brewmaster, uh, we will taste every single barrel going into a blend. And we'll identify the leading and supporting flavors and aromatics as well as the structure or like the relationship of sugar and uh, oak tannin and alcohol. Uh, we're kind of balancing the hydrophilic and hydrophobic um, tendencies of each barrel uh, and making note of that. And we say, OK, uh, we're going to grab a pH uh, and a bit of sensory on every single barrel to make sure that the barrels we didn't sample mid-season are not infected and we're not going to be. Uh, bringing a bad barrel into uh, the blend and then you know, ruining the rest of it. Um, but then once we get them all blended together, uh, we give the tank a stir uh, and we make sure it's uh, homogenized. And then we smell and test and we, you know, we uh, assess with sensory. And uh, if it's as the brewer intended, go us. Uh, and it's ready to get crashed, fined, centrifuged, and pasteurized before packaging. Uh, if it's not, then it's time to pull some volume out and put a corrective volume in. Uh, maybe it's something a little bit older and oakier and more concentrated. Maybe it's something a little bit younger and sweeter. Um, if it's too hydrophobic, if there's too much oak going on, that's the case uh, VSOJ 2021, uh, on paper, we made it more or less the same alcohol and sugar relationship as the first VSOJ that we can in 2018. Um, but because, uh, the first one was a year and a half and a two year, two and a half year component. The second one in 2021 was a one, two, two and a half and five year component. Um, the five-year component was so loud, uh, even as a quarter of the blend, uh, once we put it together, uh, on paper, it worked, but when we put it in the tank, it was so oaky and so concentrated, uh, it, it was hardly even pleasant to drink, let alone being VSOJ. So we pulled eight barrels of, um, beer out of that blend and then put in, uh, eight barrels to replace the volume of the youngest, sweetest barley wine we had in inventory, um, to, deadened the concentration, the oxidation, and the uh, extractive things that we got from that uh, super loud five-year component. So yeah, the, the balance value and everything is just to get us to the ballpark, um, but we still taste and smell and assess everything once it's blended, and then we can make corrective measures uh, from there if we want. So what do you do with the beer you pull out? Uh, that super oaky stuff went into straight jacket that year. Um, 
which, you know, VSOJ was probably a 40 oak barrel blend. We pulled out eight barrels and we put it into something that was about 150 barrels. Um, so it just added to the base of straight jacket that year. So we saved everything we extracted, everything we oxidized, everything we concentrated through evaporation. We still got to drink and it went into regular old straight jacket. Um, pretty cool. R-O-S-J. R-O-S-J as the kids call it, yes. Yeah. Um, So you uh, being in kind of uh, a big but not massive uh, brewery, uh, Marty, so for for any of the barrel program, are you um, trying to hit a flavor target or is it a – and is that target like, you know – the uh, little pinpoint that you're trying to get as close to as this is what, I mean, pick Ryeway, whatever, like this is what that is, or is it like this is conceptually what Ryeway is, and from year to year I'm just going to try to like nail like as hard as I can this this concept of, of what I think this beer is. It, does that make sense? Like are you, are you trying to hit something, or are you trying to make the best – damn beer that you can that kind of fits the general mold of 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 that that brand that's an excellent question uh you phrase it perfectly and yeah definitely the latter uh these are vintage products uh and we want them to present themselves as themselves uh but just like you or myself or anybody in this room or anybody listening we're you know some of us are trying to better ourselves some of us are just trying to coast and enjoy a good time um my approach uh, to the Deepwood program is that consistency is the enemy of improvement. Uh, we are not done getting better. Uh, and as long as I have anything to say, as long as Jim has anything to say, as long as Victor has anything to say, uh, the rest of the brew team, um, you know, the package team and everybody, uh, this is a huge team effort. Um, we want to improve all the time. And we've only been doing this. The Deepwood program is younger than Revolution itself. We're, we're talking about uh, 10, 11 years at this point. Um, we are not done getting better. And I don't think, uh, you know, if I had my say, we'll never be done getting better. Um, and uh, we have to react to the marketplace. This is a business after all. Uh, I'm not doing it for free. I'd like to eat uh, and have vacation and 401k and all that kind of good stuff. Um, I would love if everybody just wanted to drink French Oak Hellas, and uh, I'd be happy to transition <laughs> to that uh, as early as tomorrow. But um, for right now, uh, you know, we're we're in the business of making the most uh, expressive and concentrated uh, beer flavors that we possibly can. But uh, what we want to do is do it with balance and finesse. Um, and uh, traditional methods and ingredients as much as possible. Um, so these these metrics, this balance value, the malt complexity value expressed in months, yada yada yada, all these analytics, uh, they're I there. Love your terminology. They That's are awesome. there. Thank you. They're there to get us in the ballpark, uh, and then after that, uh, us as craftsmen and scientists, um, and you know, if somebody figures themselves an artist. Uh, artistry as well, uh, but we need Artisans, to get baby. We need to get in the ballpark first, and uh, good data, you know, got us to the moon. Uh, it can sure as shit make a good barley wine. Awesome, thank you, Mike. 
All right. Spreadsheets, Mike. Mike. That's a tough one to follow. <laughs> That's a tough one to follow. But how do the how do the big boys do it, man? It's yeah. How do you so do it? when I when I got to Goose in 2011, of course, Bourbon County. We're talking about Bourbon County Stout. Uh, of course, we do a lot of other barrel-aged beers, but of course, that's what we're we're known for. Uh, that beer was already nearly 20 years in the market at that point. So um, I first came to Goose as a brewer, brewed it in the brew house, then went to the cellar, you know, dealt with it in the cellar, then had to deal with the barrels. And as I mentioned, the barrels were eight-plus-year-old at that time. Um, so the age of the, that, that was our minimum standard for barrels. So our goal with a beer that's so well known and so well loved was, as I said earlier, don't beep it up, uh, Serge, the, uh, uh, just carry the torch the best we know possible. Totally agree. Of course, with Marty's philosophy, we have to constantly improve. We little inside baseball for, for about six months, I was uh, circa 2013, 2014, I was on a project to uh, develop a custom uh, malt extract, going back to malt extracts, to for Bourbon County Stout. And uh, why? To, uh, to make the process more efficient. It would not mm-hmm. compromise quality, mm-hmm. um, but we needed to figure out, we've got a 50-barrel brew house, and there was no real means to upgrade that into something larger. We wanted to produce more uh, more wort uh, at, a, at a relatively faster pace. This was a project in theory. Uh, then president uh, of the company found out about this after six months and scrapped it and said, we can never have Bourbon County Stout even be perceived to be a shortcut. Like it, you can't use malt extract in Bourbon County Stout. So this is what led us down the path of the mash filter was we need to figure out a way to make this make more of this work at the same quality using all malt, no malt extract. So this was basically a mandate, and that's what led us to the malt to the mash filter. Mash filter, it, it, and hopefully I'll come around to the whole process here. But the mash filter was a period of adjustment where we had to go through on on the brew house side, which a year later we had to figure out how those changes affected the beer of course we knew the insane extract that you get from a mash filter yeah there there were a lot of learnings i think very in a very basic sense we felt like for maybe a year there we were a little roast forward Mm -hmm. and so we had and we and we got a little leaner uh we our rdf uh uh uh, real degree of fermentation went up meaning our sugar content what years are these that you're talking about probably 2017 got it uh, so we made some adjustments to the recipe to bring back more body and sweetness, mm-hmm. basically to like previous levels. We're not talking about huge variances, but ones that we perceive. Not even getting into the current era of these the the thick with two C boys, but like just Bourbon County, mm-hmm. you know, original. So consistency in a barrel aged beer, as Marty said. There's a, we've got a very broad profile. So we use Draft Lab for taste panel. Uh, I don't know if you guys do, but it's, we find it a very good tool. And the amount of descriptors for Bourbon County Stout, Stout are, are, are vast. So there's a broad profile. So we, we need to hit a mark that from a consumer, our expectation to consumer expectation is going to be Bourbon County Stout, but it's a barrel-aged beer. Uh, as Marty said, it's a vintage beer. I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. It's there's going to be variation. Uh, we, I want we, it to change yes. every year, personally. 
temperature. We haven't even talked about temperature, but we don't temperature control our warehouse. And it's not like it was when it was across the street from Fulton, which was really exposed to the elements, but it's still, we probably swing between 45 and nearly 80 degrees Fahrenheit in that warehouse, the high and low points of the year. And that's part of the reason originally Bourbon County Stout was at least eight months in the barrel. These days we're shooting with the thousands of barrels that we're trying to deal with. It comes down to hitting your general specs in the brew house all the way through fermentation, getting, and we centrifuge pre-barrel, getting in, you know, getting the best quality barrels as we already went through, going and make sure your barrel as the ingredient is locked up, then getting it in the barrel and we're lots as well, and it's 200-day checks for micro, pH. Um, they'll do some planning, PCR, and sensory at 200 days. And that's just that early indication of, eh, is something not quite right? And, of course, those would get basically set aside if there's any issue. Um, our average age for Bourbon County Stout, I'm just talking about original here, has varied over the years. I think the last couple of years we've been about 11 and a half months, 11 and a half to 12 months average age. Now we're brewing and filling barrels nine months of the year. We're emptying three months of the year. So of course you're, you're, you've got sure. a, a lot of different, there. you've got a lot of different factors of age going into the barrel. So we're minimum eight months in the barrel. And that's just based on, again, you were there tasting it. You know, you tasted the fresh, the four month, and the basically right. eight month. And that, the eight month is where we feel like one of the benefits of having a recipe that's been brewed for so long and been scrutinized and analyzed for so long is that there's a lot, of, there's a long history. And that, so, both ex, as far as expectations, but as far as sensory. And we start to see that, that the ester profile start to kind of diminish at like the maybe the two, three month mark where the bourbon starts to really start to make a mark, but it really is just kind of a jagged piece. Eight months is where we feel like, okay, I feel like we're, we're starting to get close. At close to 12 months, we're starting to get some of those nutty oxidative characters that we really feel like is, and I think some of those like cherry notes we talked about with the Munich, cherry, blackberry, almond, all hallmark characters. It's not just chocolate. It's not just vanilla. It's not just coconut. It's got to be more than that. It's, oxidation is, and these guys, of course, have already said it, and, and they live by it, is oxidation is part of the flavor profile of these beers. And so in the environment that's very consistent, we hit our specs, where our barrels are good quality, we feel that at an average age of 11 and a half to 12 months, we're hitting the mark for where we want to be. Of course, we're tasting along the way. We're probably tasting 20% of the barrels at 200 days. It's a lot of barrels, but when we're talking about thousands of barrels, it's it's a very different program than what most brewers are going to be dealing with. Sure. Of course, our goal is to deliver a fantastic beer, uh, and that's what all of us are here to do. Um, that's what has worked for us. We're not manipulating you know, brew house rep recipes like Marty is. And I don't think a lot of brewers are. That's it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And I really applaud it. It's, it's, it's amazing that what you're doing for us, it's a different set of factors. And uh, again, what I poured um, out of the, the crowler earlier was not 
Ruhl's recipe changes. Well, it was, but really more just kind of a blending to right. a very small batch blending, something that we, we don't get to do very often. And that I think as brewers makes us really excited is to take four different recipes, three different three three or four different barrels, eighteen to thirty six months, and then just pick what fits. Like what's that sweetness? What's that alcohol? I actually don't know what we didn't even run numbers on this yet, the Fizchem. So I, my guess is it's around 16% alcohol. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. It's we just like all of us, we're trying to make the best quality product. It's very sensory driven, also very data driven. Um, and but I agree with Marty. We're constantly trying to improve process. Having gone through the nightmare of 2015, where we had to basically break it down and rebuild it. Um, it was hell for a year, but I feel like we came out of that so much better as a brewery. Um, we, you know, we weren't pasteurizing before that. Right. Uh, right. We were we were re- reusing barrels before that. You know, not very sure. not for Bourbon County Stout, but for our barley wine and some other brands, we would sure. we would go from beer to beer, and we know that's a very different environment than a high proof ethanol, right, right. you know, Into rich barrel. Uh, barrel with very low sweetness. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, just between just the three people here, wasn't intended this way, but I mean, just just with the barrel program and how you have to blend it, just completely different set of parameters and requirements, and and uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Um, <clears throat> where to now? Are we done? There's nothing else to say about barrel aged beers. I think we've said it all. Yeah. See Marty, Marty goes, play that music, Marty goes on vibes, right? Yeah, Marty, pure vibes. We knew that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have a quick question. Uh, since the three of us are in the room and kind of curious, like, uh, like your take on it, but if you guys ever ran across a barrel, or how often, I guess, do you guys run across one barrel if you're doing a tasting? And you're like, this is the shit. This is the best barrel that we've tasted today or in the last year or two years. Like, this stands out. <clears throat> two-part question is there do you guys do anything with that barrel do you set it aside and do a single barrel with it uh it, versus how many times that you taste through all these barrels put them all together and the and the sum is so much better than all those single individual barrels uh for me very rarely do i come across a barrel that stands out to me that ends up being like damn that but that one barrel that too we put good in here to blend how much you mean was too good like we shouldn't yeah. have put it in here it was it would have stood really well on its own versus usually the, the outcome is that we blend and we find that the whole blend just turned into like this magical sort of thing uh, i'm curious like what you guys is like and, a, like and a also, single note versus a chord yeah, yeah. almost yeah yeah you know and yeah. also before uh they answer because i like to just butt in it <laughs> And and the one per, the one person that this was not asked to will answer first. <laughs> you know, I wasn't asked to. <laughs> well, but you at least have done it before. <laughs> I've not. Uh, it's, long time. It, it's also interesting because I, I'm curious about like it might be like more of a lamentation for you, Mike Siegel, because can you even do something with that one beautiful barrel versus you, Sean, who can take advantage of it? It's kind of like a a nice opportunity for you, but anyway, we, right, we, we we've done it. We've got a tap room like every That's other true. brewery, That's so true. we've we pulled off single casks. We've I've had forgotten barrels, the the, the Siegel forgotten barrels that end up being four year, uh, four years old that were like 
some project that I completely forgot about, wasn't on paper. And we'll... Passion we'll, about four years ago. But. Yeah. <laughs> and so those, those will tend to go to, we call them barrel selects, and we'll put them in the, uh, in the tap room as a special offering. Um, we're working on a different uh, route to market for that. Uh, to drop uh, a little hint, but um, I think that's fun. I mean, obviously, the bourbon world is all about the bourbon world is all about barrel picks, and um, I mean, you guys are already doing it. It sounds like so. Uh, other breweries, I know, microphones doing it, and I don't know. Are you doing single barrel? Uh, we've really just been doing it with uh, the few times that we've done it with the retail partners and stuff, where they do a single barrel and yeah. bring it in, age it for twenty five, thirty months, and uh, do it that way, uh, but not too often. Not, yeah, not not as much as maybe we could or should. Sure. So that's that's an opportunity, you know, just to uh, quote unquote commercialize it. But for now, we we haven't. We it's just been let's put it through the pilot brewery um, and and keg it off and and serve it to loving beer lovers. At Revolution, we have uh, you know four to five barrel age release parties a year. Uh, we have opportunities between them as well to to drop single barrels and draft variants, but typically draft variants uh, are going to be landing at these uh, these big releases. Uh, we call them money barrels if we've got a single barrel that's expressing itself particularly attractively. Um, because we do very sweet and very dry versions of everything and then bring them back together to, to make a concert, the money barrels have become more rare over the years. However, as we do these double barrel projects, we do the first blending into a tank and then refill fresh barrels. So now we have, rather than 12 components that we then have to manage, we have one component to manage. And on these double barrel uh, situations like Form of the Destructor, which was a single barrel pick, a money barrel as we call it, of uh, the 2020 batch of double barrel VSOD out of a Weller barrel, um, it was already perfectly balanced um, for our estimation. And there was one barrel uh, that I, I can't recall the number, um, but uh, it had everything we wanted. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complete beer. Uh, oftentimes it's just a vanilla bomb or a coconut bomb. And it's an opportunity not only to drink a good beer that you can't drink anywhere else, uh, but it's a great educational tool for the consumer to come into our tap room and see just what flavors, aromatics, and intensities are possible uh, through barreling and not uh, barreling with adjuncting. And this was uh, educated by... Uh, various trips to um, to Buellton, California, to uh, Firestone Walker's Barrel Works, where they had components of blends. Some of the some of the best wild and uh, sour beers I've ever had were at Barrel Works. They were uh, Feral Vinifera, Feral One, uh, you know, all these, to me, classic uh, barrel-aged sours. But they'd have these components that weren't necessarily great on their own, like Cowbell. Um, you know, their, their acid component, if something is really acidic, um, they might not use a lot of it in a particular blend. Uh, but if they have another blend that is kind of lacking in acid, they've got this component cowbell that they can just add like, Hey, this is great, lower. but it needs more cowbell. That's exactly right. 
Um, so they'll have cowbell on, which is just, you know, a strongly acidic beer. And it's not necessarily meant to be its own complete, compelling, fantastic, amazing beer. Uh, but it's an opportunity to educate the consumer and so many people who are coming to your brewery on purpose. And that's the case in Buellton, California. And a lot of more, a lot more people travel to that brewery than live in that town, uh, for their liberations. Uh, and the same is true on Kedzie Avenue. We don't have a whole lot of foot traffic. If you're there at a barrel age release, you're there on purpose. You don't just show up and go, oh, there's a giant fucking barrel release happening right now. Um, we, we want an opportunity to educate people um, uh, just what is possible from the right barrel. Uh, and it doesn't happen often, and it's not always the perfect barrel, uh, but sometimes it's just an extreme... Uh, communication from barrel to consumer and it's a it's a great way to educate people um, just what is possible and what we're dealing with is kind of raw materials uh, before we get blending Mike where would you like to go from here I think well I think we should talk about adjuncting Uh, now you've made this blend or maybe before you make the blend you have an idea of what you're doing but how do you decide which adjuncts for which beers and how do you go about then processing that? Yeah, M- Marty raised go his Marty. hand. Doug usually tells me what adjuncts to put over here. <laughs> Got it. Hey, Doug, what's going on? Uh, the beer just, aficionado himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm just goofing. Um, so uh, coconut but, from all uh, the analytics. Just put more yeah. coconut in it. You know, yeah. from uh, speaking selfishly, uh, just this is just Marty Scott saying, I like adjuncts that represent flavors and aromatics that are already present in barrels. Or if we're going to fruit something, uh, I like something that uh, monks have been using or Trappist breweries or Lambic producers. I want something with a track record in brewing. Um, I, I worship traditional methods and ingredients. Um, coffee uh, is something we specialized in and it, you know, it's not, you know, 200 years of tradition of putting coffee in beers, uh, but it's a proven uh, and established ingredient. How, uh, how do you go about adding coffee to beers? Ooh, it's very simple. Uh, it didn't used to be. Uh, we have a. <laughs> it's funny. We also had Laffler was in here in the at the at the tap room earlier, which is. I mean, was he? He was the the steward of Bourbon County for the first year of uh, coffee, I believe. So yeah. Yeah, kind of John funny. and I worked together for, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe. Yeah, it's just kind of, I don't know, I don't know why. That's I why we, that. how we got it. That's how I got into making forty barrels of cold brew coffee every year. Right, for many exactly. Years. The actual exactly. coffee was forty barrels. Wow. Well, yeah, that's a different podcast. Yes. As far as revolution is concerned in coffee extraction, we have a, a process we refer to as selective extraction. Uh, I'm not going to elucidate absolutely everything. Uh, some things have to remain sacred. Uh, but uh, if you don't extract green pepper into your beer, your beer will never present with green pepper. And uh, so these pyrazines, uh, you select for coffee that doesn't contain it, and then you extract uh, to... Uh, avoid getting any of that if it's in there the uh, i'll i'll leave it like this the best sensory experience you can have with a bag of coffee is a freshly roasted bag that you cut open and you stick your nose into you didn't have to extract that the coffee is giving the atmosphere that Uh, it's volatile Uh, some of the other components it's why cutting into a bag is more is is more pleasant than chewing on a coffee bean right 
Um, so how do you go like a about, hop, right? Just like a hop, hops can be over extracted. Malt <laughs> can be over extracted. Same too with coffee. So many people want to recirculate on ground coffee for a week to get their money's worth. Uh, but they've gotten everything good out of that coffee much quicker than that. And probably without grinding or recirculation. Hmm. Um, and that's, uh, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> All right, then. So that's about adjuncts. Uh, Sean, uh, you are of a, I don't know if it's third wave or whatever, but you're definitely of the ilk where um, you've probably done more concentrations of adjuncts within in a stout and also um, are, uh, well, that's not true because we have Mike Siegel here as well. <laughs> right. Sorry. But Mike... Uh, I'm sorry, but Sean, um, <laughs> yeah, like what is your uh, approach to to adjuncts and combining adjuncts and, and stuff like that? So I'm a little bit in the, so I, I, I kind of like in this split of g- generations of brewers and uh, I try to hold on to my traditional training and uh, the brewers who trained me who are to me, pioneers in, in the craft beer, you know, brewing in the 90s and, and uh, early 2000s and stuff like that before craft beer boom really happened. Um, and I really hold on to that. I try to. Uh, but I also know that the, you know, we've pointed out it's a business. We got to sell the beer. Uh, people have to enjoy the beer. Uh, so we definitely dabble and get a little weird sometimes. Uh, but I definitely try to keep, keep us... Uh, dialed in and and make sure that we're making smart decisions and and stuff like that so our approach is always though if we say something's in a beer we tend to hit you over the head with it uh i that was very much how it was like in the early i'd say between you know 2010 2015 uh maybe even before just 2020 actually uh you don't want someone to taste it and be like i don't taste the coconut coconut yeah, Hazel. whatever. 100%. Hazelnut. Yeah, yeah and that, whatever. And that was always like the slap in the face, you know. It was like we we sat there and we put coconut in something or whatever. And, and they spent uh, all day putting it in or exactly. something like that. And yeah. then people are like, I don't get it. And you're like, dude, it's all over the beer. <laughs> yeah, right. 12 uh, pounds per barrel. <laughs> so uh, how do you know what we do? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've done it. <laughs> uh, no, but it's like that was always the slap in the face. So we definitely like leaned into that. It was like clobbering you over the head. But like I pointed out earlier, as far as like the sweetness and, and that stuff, we're kind of, we're, we're slowly going to trend back down and try to find that balance. Cause I think people are finally understanding what the beer is all about. Um, but, but that was always the approach. Uh, I like working with just about any adjunct, but to, to kind of, to Marty's point, I like to use adjuncts that are complementary to Flavors already found in the yeast profile, in the malt profile, in the barrel profile. Um, I, I am not a, and that's probably honestly ninety percent, ninety five percent of uh, the adjuncts that I've used are complementary adjuncts. There's mm-hmm. a, sometimes where you know we get a little weird and we'll do strawberry, and very rarely do we find strawberry in our in our tasting, you know, of barrel aged beer sometimes, but not usually. It's not a, a very prominent one or, or but like chocolate a bit. dipped strawberries are kind of like a classic sure. combination at least. Yes, exactly. I mean it's so I try to find like that is is like I, I remember back in the day, you know, uh for me it was 
looking at truffles. I would go on, on you know, chocolate websites type of thing, and I would scroll through and see, like, what, what flavor combos were working with uh, truffles, hazelnut, uh, coffee, oh, uh, coconut, stuff like that. I got and, it. And kind of yeah. just be like, oh, those sound great. That's a, a win like for sure, it's a W. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna use that, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do it. And usually it was, um, but yeah, I know I'm gonna further this. I know I know part of your the outline referenced uh, some like uh, extracts and stuff. I shouldn't even be talking about this, but uh, we're not afraid of extracts if they are the superior product. So uh, we we do use uh, we've used I can think of two extracts that we. And, and I'm I'm only gonna stick to barrel aged spirit beers that we do. So uh, other beers kind of off the table. Uh, but for barrel aged beer, we try to use premium product, real raw sort, you know, raw ingredients, and and use them to incorporate whatever flavor we're going for. Occasionally, though, we're going for a flavor that is just unobtainable, or I think less superior than using an extract. Sure. And we will do tasting panels. We'll we'll try this flavoring, this flavoring. Uh, this real ingredient, uh, this real ingredient, and we'll come to the consensus that is just like, well, if that's the flavor profile we want, then we have to, then this is the, this produced the best representation of that flavor. Sure. Is there a trend for like what types of flavors or what types of ingredients are <clears throat> harder to extract in the natural form versus better in the oh, I mean, I can form? Think I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a there, I, I don't want to I won't speak under the ones that we have used. Uh, I like leave that up to the imagination of the of the listener here. Um, and I don't want to spoil, you know, have your, have someone's favorite book be spoiled by me saying something, you know, silly and they're like, "Oh, really? That was that's an, uh, a flavoring." Uh, again, cuz I think I think that's a marketing component. People will buy into that and I think given the given the chance to to taste it blindly not knowing it's a superior product trust me we've tried real stuff and not real stuff and if we do use it it's be, it's for a reason it's not to cut a corner um but the one the one thing i will not use for a flavoring so kind of the opposite of your question nice uh, is well done is is coconut uh that's one thing we do not use extract every extract i've ever ever tried and known try to try in a beer always comes across as suntan lotion um I will not use uh, a coconut flavoring. We only use uh, real coconut. I found the the nut extracts, like, just you cannot get that flavor of an almond. Nobody puts real almond in, which is why I'm using it as an example. But, like... Some people might. I mean, you. it's true. But, like... Almonds are almonds, hazelnuts, peanut butter. Yeah, it's like, all that, that stuff. It's so it hard. Without and, extracting a bunch of fat. Well, just even like, like even when never you're eating, <laughs> right? Even when you're eating like a, a, a dessert that's just like loaded with almonds, and then you just get a dab of almond extract from McCormick. I mean, it's just like night and day. Like, oh, that's just such a concentrated almond flavor. That's that's what I've noticed. Is like there's certain things that like are just. Stand. Now I'm gonna say I, I almost said industry standards, but it's like at home baking standards. It, it goes back to knowing <laughs> you know? your ingredients, just like Sean's saying. You got to know to your. It's a tool like anything else. And as somebody who's overseen more adjuncts added to barrel aged stout than anybody, just about anybody, probably <laughs> not just about than anybody. I mean, uh, we. Yeah. I mean, for instance, we added ten thousand pounds of Black Mission figs to. Our most prized beer. We we had a we have a four hundred barrel horizontal tank at uh, at the barrel warehouse. We we loaded it up over the course of a whole day 
with 10,000 pounds of black mission figs. It, it ran about Amazing. 40 feet, three feet deep. We then put the beer on top of that, about 300 barrels of the beer, and then gently recirculated that for about three weeks until we got what we wanted. But we felt like three there, there weeks. Was no, Doesn't there was, uh, where's the fig? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't get any fig, bro. I get no black mission fig in this. You only had five tons. This is the best black mission fig WTF, beer I've ever had. I'll taste man. any of it. Two and a half stars. So we also added seven thousand pounds of of roasted and sl- uh, sliced almonds to a beer last year. And but you know what? Nuts. <laughs> seven thousand. Nuts are pounds. very volatile. Right. As these guys probably know, if you ever worked with coconut or or any type of nut, really, the the uh, the compounds are very volatile. So you that beer may taste fantastic in the bright tank, but and even in packaging. But a month later, two months later, boom, boom, boom. you have to per, you have to know where that profile is going to be. Whatever your expected profile changes, um, every time we've used coconut or almonds or pecans or whatnot. The volatile oils just really change quickly, whereas you use cassia bark and it's like the gets like crazy. Freaking cockroach yeah, goes of, off of adjuncts that never go away, you know, <laughs> or berry fruits with their antioxidants. And so, again, we've made, as somebody said on our brand team, that we made 65 variants, uh, and most of those have been in my time there, adjunct variants. And um, I, I take a lot of pride in the work. You know, our goal is to, it's a little bit different than what, we were there probably eight years ago with this, like, this is what Greg instilled in me is like, work with resonant, yeah. yeah, resonant consonant flavors, the vanilla, the chocolate, the caramel, the coffee. So look at the early variants of Bourbon County Stout. But we were, we were pushing ourselves to, and I think the consumers were pushing us to bring the new news and not redo vanilla every year, not redo coffee every year. Not, not although we did coffee for a number of years. Our goal now is to not do the same thing every year, but bring new news. And my, you know, to use the old happy days phrase, never jump the shark. And meaning like, you know, and I'm sure there's people out there that think we have, you know, there's people that thought with when we made a beer with black tea, Earl Grey tea and honey that, you know, they never wanted to see us ever again. I like that beer. I love that beer. I like that, that beer. Those are my favorite <laughs> but, variants you've made. It's we're not afraid to be polarizing is where I'm going. Is like can't be great if you're not polarizing. Vanilla is vanilla and coconut tend to be in coffee tend to be these everybody loves them. Although some people don't like coconut, some people you know what I mean. Like they they resonate with a a wide sure. We're we're not all the time, but we're willing to be polarizing in order to push ourselves and I think the expectations from the beer lovers that, that buy these beers forward. You know, when we use citrus, we did midnight orange with cocoa nibs and orange, and it's that chocolate orange thing. Mm-hmm. And it's all about what all of us have been saying tonight is is finding the balance of those ingredients, finding that best quality ingredients that work with the beer and finding the balance. You know, conceptually, it's very tough. You know, you, you want to push yourself to do something. We want to push ourselves to do something new that isn't just like new for being new, but it really works. You know, it, it, whether it's inspired by a bourbon cocktail or a dessert or any of those flavor profiles that are like one or two layers removed from the, the expected profile of your beer. So that's, that's how we approach it. Right. 
I think it's uh, what, what are you looking at, Mike? Marty's used adjuncts too. Yeah, I didn't. Oh yeah, you yeah. did talk about strawberry. I, I yeah. was most interested in strawberry straight jacket. How uh, do you introduce sugar into something like that uh, at that level and make sure it fits into your your matrix? And then we can we can close it out. But that that was one beer that I thought existed outside of strawberry of jacket. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We, we longed in the early days of Stray Jacket when it was still good beer in, good beer out, especially. We got a lot of strawberry Twizzlers was a, uh, a common uh, sensory note that we got when we were sampling barrels. Uh, and that was a, um, it was kind of a defining aromatic in the first couple of years of Stray Jacket. And uh, we hadn't had a whole lot of strawberry adjuncted beers we had done cherry we had done coffee we had done all the hallmarks uh, that we've already discussed um, but here was a kind of an outlier as far as uh, a lot of commercial examples but it was still a complimentary flavor to us uh, so we decided to go for it and uh, for us we just want to make sure the more sugar you have in an adjunct the more we feel because we still want to we still want to present a kind of dry drinkable beer um, you have to leave a hole for that so you that's where you know blending and cheating towards or uh, favoring the drier components in a blend can leave a hole for unfermented uh, sugary adjuncts uh, so strawberry you know we figured out the acidity and the sugar concentration and then we blended uh, straight jacket um, that would leave a hole for the strawberry to come in and not make it cloyingly sweet or too acidic or anything else. So it was, you know, dynamic aging and thoughtful blending uh, that started with a spreadsheet and just bench topping uh, some strawberry puree, spinning out the solids and pulling off the juice, adding it to a, a blend on the laboratory bench top and saying this is, you know, how many barrels of how many lots uh, are going to come. Uh, into the blend and then how much of this strawberry juice is going to go in and then how much that strawberry pulp is going to precipitate out and not become beer. Um, so we order the right amount of fruit, uh, not too much, not too little, um, to be ex you know expressive and to not over or undershoot our volume. And, you know, there, there were rakes that we walked into, um, you know, these are, these are challenges. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, it's, it's successful as far as the sensory is concerned, but maybe we lose our ass on volume and we didn't, <laughs> we didn't factor in the pulp, uh, or maybe we, we over factor in the pulp and we're really long, uh, on volume, but, uh, the sensory is always first and foremost, then as uh, to tie into like extracts or not to use extracts, uh, in the Deepwood program, we don't use any extracts. Sometimes I wish, uh, well, sometimes the beers could be better. Uh, the higher sugar concentration of your natural adjunct, we're talking maple, honey, stuff like that, they're really simple sugars. Uh, these are one chain length sugars that hit right on the front of your tongue. Uh, whereas maltose, uh, a slightly more complex sugar, that's what we call that mid palate sweetness. Uh, we want to make sure that a barley wine hits like a barley wine and not like a honey wine, not like a maple wine. Um, and those are rakes that we've walked into, uh, because we don't want it to be cloying necessarily, but then we're pairing, uh, sh super sugary adjuncts. Um, the only way 
we can keep a balance is to use super dry barley wine. And what we did uh, kind of mistakenly in the last couple of years is we were using enzymes to create these super dry components. Mm. Uh, so even all the unfermented sugar was still very simple. So when all the sweetness is single chain length sugars, it that that uh, that sweetness hits you right up front. And even if, like in the case of Strawberry Jacket, after the unfermented fruit is added, uh, the blend is still drier than regular old straight jacket chemically. You run it through the alkalizer or Anton Parr in the lab, uh, uh, regular old straight jacket, again, it's a relationship of sugar and alcohol, uh, but typically straight jacket is about seven to seven and a half degrees Play-Doh finishing fully blended. Strawberry jacket is like five degrees Play-Doh. So but you have people telling you like, this beer's so sweet. And you're like, no, I, I can show you. Yeah, exactly. Scientifically, yeah. technically, no, Chemi- but also Chemically, right. exactly. But whose palate is wrong? No one's. Right, right, uh, right. So chemically, there is less sugar in some of these high sugar adjunct barley wine stouts and stuff that revolution has produced in the past uh is recently even uh but paired with these drier components that were dry because of enzymatic activity that we added sure um all that sugar hits you up front and it leaves nothing for that mid palate uh so it winds up being this incomplete beer even though uh, we said no this is still a drier beer than the regular unfruited version uh it presents as sweeter and nobody's palate is wrong Right, man, it's it's interesting. I'll also make a a little comment that uh, several knowing nods from uh, Mike Siegel while you were talking. I don't know exactly about what, but it seemed like a few things struck a chord with him as well. He was just giving yes, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think this. I think we've officially. I was I was talking with with Serge just off mic very briefly, and I think we may. Have to go. This may have gone two parter. I think I told Let's poor go. Sean Burns that <laughs> this is going to be like a ninety minute thing, and then like here we are. So I apologize one, for that. Two. Right. So uh, so I think we'll have to split that. This this. We show didn't even into, talk about what two. type of racking wands people are using. Come on. Oh Chris. my goodness. We, I'm sure oh all of us goodness. could do another two hours on adjuncts alone. I know I could. So. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Maybe that'll be its own podcast. Yeah. Right. That'll be the after the uh, the, the Patreon, Patreon only. episode. The Patreon only. <laughs> Which we've alluded to. One day we'll, okay, one we'll nude, release one all nude of those. from Chris and all of the adjunct talk. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wait, our, that's our, the, our, oh, that's the OnlyFans. The, 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 the OnlyFans only. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to. I want to add one thing. I the the first question uh, asked was uh, why barrel age, and I don't think I got my turn, and I was kind of stewing on it too, and thinking about it. And my first my first answer I was going to say was you know it reminds me of sort of like cheese making, you know, you can make American cheese and be happy with it, slap it on a sandwich, or you can like do like 10 year, 15, 20 year age cheddar. And I think that the answer would be the same if you asked that cheesemaker and you asked us, I think we'd all agree that, you know, it's interesting to do it. It's timely to do it. And not a lot of, you know, not a lot of breweries have the patience to do it and have the, the, uh, the know-how, I guess, uh, I really think it comes down to patience and just accessibility that it's just, it's easier to make the American cheese versus making the, the 20 year cheddar. So that was, that was kind of my reason why we do it. I think it's more interesting. It makes the product more interesting. You can't replicate it to my knowledge. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, you know, you can't replicate barrel aging through any other means of brewing or cellaring. 
Uh, and I think it makes a cool product. Good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to step on your last couple words. I apologize. <laughs> no, you're good. That was it. I just wanted to get that out. I appreciate that. Well said. Yeah. No, you can't. I mean, you cannot create these beers, in my experience, any any no. other way. Thought, effort, and time. <sighs> yeah. Thanks to a TTP loophole. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. Yes. I think I think I'm calling it Mike. I think I think I have to. Quitter. Yeah, I know. I, I I'm sorry. Um but it's been awesome. Uh thank you guys so much. Um I want to thank all our guests. I'm gonna go around the horn one more time, uh, to let everyone just uh, have a, a final word if they have any. You don't have to. You can pull the Jerry Nelson. That's totally cool. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but I just uh, wanted to to thank everyone. I'll go in reverse seniority for uh, for the closing remarks. Sean, is there anything you would like to say in addition to the thing you just wanted to say <laughs> <laughs> before we get out of here? Uh, no, not really. I, I, again, I want to just thank you for having me on the show. Uh, thought it was really fun. Uh, I haven't got to really talk to Marty. So it was great hearing his perspective on it. And I think you, you, you created a really cool panel here with a kind of very small, like me, uh, brewery that's, you know, not, not, not making a whole ton of barrel, uh, barrel age stuff, but very passionate about it. And then, uh, you know, middle all the way up to, you know, tens of thousands or whatever barrels uh, is sitting over in the Goose Island. Where millions, so. I think they're up to. <laughs> M- billions. Like tens of millions. Billions, billions, billions of barrels. It's getting yeah. bigger as we speak. So. Yeah, I think exponentially growing. Yeah. But but thank you again. I appreciate it. It was very fun. Oh, p- believe me. The uh, thank you. Uh, thank I you that for for all three of us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Motorhead is the greatest rock and roll band of all time. You're wearing uh, their hoodie right now, so so that means he's he's telling the truth. <laughs> uh, Mike. Well, I'm going to put a, a plug in for WFMT, Chicago's <laughs> Classical also Station. Wearing, same vibe, also same vibe. wearing the, <laughs> the shirt. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Chris uh, and Mike uh, and Serge. Of course. To, for having us. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been great. Mike, would you like Mike Shalau? Would you like to say anything before we get out of here? <laughs> no, nah, I, I think we've made people listen to us enough for the day. <laughs> We're going to break it up into two. These are two short episodes. They're, they're, they want more. Oh, well, then I got about an hour and a half to get. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> see you next time. All right. We'll see you later, guys. So long. Remember, this is what we wanted. Remember, this is what we said. To never be heard and seen from again, 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 again. Remember this is what we wanted Remember this is what we said To never be heard and seen from again Again, again, again Remember this is what we wanted Remember this is what we said To never be heard and seen from again Again, again, again